Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming. Now, this is normally the time when I would say something about a renaissance of gaming, and there being too many good games out there that we could spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on. But I'm not going to do that this time. I'm not going to do that because this particular episode, though we will mention gaming at the end, is not necessarily about gaming. Uh, this is one of the episodes that we are going to look at an aspect of uh, pop culture or nerd culture or whatever else um, that really interests me and my guest. Uh, now, this is a movie that when we did a, a poll a long time ago with the LRDG, this was one of the movies that was the most popular for people to watch or I guess, listen to while they were painting and enjoying. It is a movie that people who uh, who play bolt action love, and it's just one of those movies that is universally loved. In fact, on it is you know in the top ten on quite a few best movies of all time lists, if not in the top hundred of everyone's. Uh, of course, we're talking about the work of Steven Spielberg, and we're going to get to that in just a second. Now, I'm super excited. You can probably tell by the amount of talking I am cramming into a short amount of time, and I will slow down once I get my rhythm. But I'm particularly excited today because it is not every day that I get to have old dear friends on the show. Now, you've heard me have people on the show before who I've known from way back when. Um, the olden days of gaming from being in the U.S., uh, of course, Dave Taylor, um, Matt Stanley, just tons of people who I've talked to in other places um, that I've known over the years. Today is a day where I get to bring on a friend, uh, one of my closest and nearest and dearest buddies of all time. Uh, I, I literally, in compiling, and you guys know how much I love hyperbole and a big introduction, but I literally had two pages of notes on how to just introduce this man. So I'm going to condense it down to just some of the bald, the big, bold points before we get into why he's on this episode. I'd like to start by saying this is a man that um, I toured the United States with uh, in my ska band in college. This is a man who, the one of the only human beings that I can see or have seen playing two saxophones at once on stage. Um, this is a man who was a regular uh, guest, if not full, I guess, DJ on my radio show that I did for years and years, which predates me podcasting, but without which I never would have done podcasting. Um, this is a man who, at his wedding, I may have spear-tackled him at his own reception into a pool. Um, this is a man who won snowy New Orleans New Year's Eve. Um, there was a man with a monkey suit and spear-tackling involved. That's all I really remember of that night. Um, and for those who don't know, it never snows in New Orleans. There's just a million and two things that I could talk about. But that sort of narrows it down and, and sort of paints an unfair picture of one of the most sensible, fair, honest, beautiful human beings who is both the angel and the devil on your shoulder at the same time. I, I, I cannot understate this enough. This is a gentleman who is literally my brother from another mother. Aaron Dieterwolf, welcome to Cast Dice. Thanks for having me, man. I'd, uh, I'd put in there two little notes. Uh, I was figuring out tonight that it was uh, 21 years ago that you introduced me to my wife. 
Yes, so we sir. can add that to the uh, to the tally marks as well. Boom. Yes. And uh, man, you guys are an awesome couple. And I love that you guys are, you know, still happily married, of course, and have lovely kids and just killing it into Nashville, man. It's awesome. In, in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, man. Halfway around the world, right? Yep. Uh, I also forgot in there that you are the only person I know who has tattoos of mine glyphs saying that you are a god on your shoulders. <laughs> Just 22 years ago, you took me for my first tattoos. <laughs> Woo, who's counting? Um, yes, there are right? some. Yeah, right. There you go. Uh, those were the days. Um, but, yeah, those, yeah, those are the first ones, man. It's taken a turn since then, let me tell you. <laughs> yes, and we'll get to that in just one second. Now, why are you on today when we are clearly talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark? Well, that is because... Despite all of these wonderful little stories that I've thrown out hints at, you are by all, well, you are by trade an archaeologist, a an actual practicing everyday archaeologist in the world. And you have been since I've known you, um, which is, you know, pretty astonishing because I remember when I was a little kid and, you know, you all, you know, you'd be in class and, you know, it'd be that day in kindergarten or grade one where they said, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you draw the silhouette of the person you want to be and you talk about it and all of that. Quite a few kids in that class wanted to be archaeologists. I'm just saying, you are. That is pretty spectacular. I appreciate that, man. I, uh, I've had a pretty good, lucky run career-wise, and it is, uh, it's panned out, yeah. Well, mate, uh, as I said, you are a hardworking, clever man. So uh, if anyone was going to do it, uh, I honestly and always thought it was you. But um, shall we talk a little bit about your career? Because you, when I knew you, you were doing work um, on and off in Guatemala, and then you did more work in Belize. Um, and you did that for quite a while after, um, and you were studying a lot of Maya archaeology. Am I getting that right? Yeah, that's so, you know, you and I met at Tulane down in New Orleans, mm -hmm. um, and I was in I was in grad school there studying my archaeology, and for a couple of years at that point before we met had been, you know, spending field seasons, spending summers down in uh, Guatemala and Belize, both working on uh, ancient Maya sites, various different sites, and that, that continued for a little while there after, after I got my degree and after you pieced out of New Orleans for the last time, mm -hmm. and... Uh, then I sort of shifted focus, and um, a lot of that had to do with uh, with my wife Francesca, who you introduced me to, and mm -hmm. um, suddenly decided that you know herring off to the jungles of South America wasn't the most romantic thing in my life anymore, and right. uh, <laughs> ended up shifting focus a little bit and started doing a uh, what we call contract archaeology, so uh, basically private industry stuff in Louisiana and southeastern mm -hmm. United States, and that eventually got me up to Nashville. Nice. And, and uh, so sort of. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so in the last decade, you've been doing a lot of prehistoric archaeology uh, for Tennessee. Like basically anytime someone's digging, um, you know, renovating whatever else, digging a parking lot, putting a new bathroom in their house, um, whatever else, if they run into human remains and or, you know, archaeological sites, they have to call you. Yeah, they should call me. Whether they do or not is up, right. up for debate. But yeah, so uh, so for the last decade, I, I am the prehistoric archaeologist for the state of Tennessee. Um, so we got about 33,000 recorded archaeological sites in Tennessee. And uh, one of me who handles everything that happened before about 1500 A.D. 
Um, so, uh, you know, I got, I got a couple things to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Never a dull moment. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. Um, but that, that's just you professionally. Let's talk about, and I don't want to understate this by saying hobby, but you have like a, a, a sub specialty that, um, relates directly back to a conversation we were just having. So you, I, I, how do I say this? Um, so you do a lot of research and you write books and you have, you're kind of an expert on ancient tattoo practices. That is probably your fault as a matter of fact, right? Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I sort of stumbled into this niche research topic, which is ancient tattooing. And, uh, and it, it, Really, it started back when we knew each other in New Orleans. It was something I was curious about. It always sort of stocked away in the back of my head as something I'd get to eventually. And um, about 10 years ago, I finally eventually got to it. And um, it turns out the things had legs, man. It's, uh, you know, a couple books and journal articles and this is and whatnots later. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we got a lot of a lot of irons in the fire still. I'm doing this uh, this tattoo archaeology Instagram thing now, which has been a kind of nice. a weird new foray into social media. I, th- I think I'm a little older than Instagram is, <laughs> you know, people that are supposed to be using it. Yeah. But, uh, but it's cool, man. That's at archaeology Inc. Um, Hey, check it out. Right. Click through. I was oh, about to say um, archaeology <laughs> Inc. How about that name? One more time. How about that name? Right. Archaeology. Um, Inc. Yep. But, uh, yeah, you know, we've had, I've had a pretty good couple of years with that. Um, we've been, I've been doing some stuff with, uh, looking at South American mummies using sort of different, uh, technology, imaging technologies to find and see tattoos that are invisible to the naked eye. Um, earlier this year, a buddy and I did a project where we found a 2000 year old cactus spine tattoo tool from Utah. Um, so yeah, you know, this is, uh, this has been going pretty well, man. Nice. Now, just to continue in that thread, I mean, when you and I were got a tattoo together um, all those years ago, that was the traditional, uh, and when I say traditional, I mean the more conventional tattoo gun slash machine that um, we know and love from tattoo shops these days. But since then, um, since you've really dug into these practices, you actually have tattoos now using these traditional practices. Yeah. Uh, you know, it all kind of goes off the rails a little bit, right? You know, it's, uh, <laughs> <Don't> we all <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, you know, so a, cu- a couple of years ago I took a, I took a trip to Indonesia and, uh, was, was fortunate enough to, to get some hand tapped work done there by, a, a artist named Durga, um, mm-hmm. who does fantastic stuff. Um, and that was using, you know, modern, modern steel needles set into traditional hand tap tools. Um, but since then, one of the one of the research angles I've been looking at is uh, what the microscopic wear patterns are that form on tools when they're used to tattoo, right? So, like, wow. you know, there's a lot of sharp and pointy things in the archaeological record. So yes. one of these questions is how can you tell when, say, a sharp bone was used to tattoo as opposed to used to make clothing? Right. Or, you know, used to pierce hide. Mm-hmm. And uh, so at a certain point along the way, there was this question of like, well, we can do this on pig skin, right? That's a forensic proxy for human. Mm-hmm. But how do we know that dead pig skin and live human skin leave the same microscopic wear signatures? Well, 
guinea pig. I'm right. I'm I'm right. I'm right-handed, so I guess I'll work on my left arm. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Damn. And you know, one, and once you pull that band-aid off, it goes south in a hurry, right? Because then you know that from that point on, you're just like, ooh, cactus spines, ooh, sharp yeah. needles, ooh, stone tools, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, it's a thing. Yeah. Uh, now, again, I did introduce you to your wife, and I've known your wife as long as I've known you. Um, yep. How did that fly? Well, you know, when she was in high school, she uh, apparently, she and her friends, she grew up in Washington State, and she and her mm-hmm. friends apparently had a deal of some sort that, you know, none of them was ever going to marry a guy from the South or anybody with tattoos. And uh, I, I like to, you know, I've, I've been steadily, uh, steadily failing upward on both those counts. So good stuff. Nice. Well played, sir. Well played. Oh, well, there's there's, of course, you are going to be our archaeological expert today um, when we are looking at Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I'm sure there's going to be some gold in there. But um, I did want to talk to you a little bit. Uh, I didn't want to get into the middle of talking about a scene from the movie and then talk to you about, you know, this archaeological practice. But I was watching a documentary recently where they were talking about um, they were specifically looking at Guatemala and they were mapping sort of the, the, the rainforest in Guatemala using LIDAR. And the what that does is it allows um, the people who are using the drones and the planes to to map the the contours of the earth to eliminate plants, um, which and if you think about how many plants there are in a rainforest, um, it, it eliminates everything but soil, rock and stone. And so all of a sudden they're finding far more ruin sites um, than were initially thought there because no one knew that they were there because now they're able to find them and then get to them. Um, that was mind-blowing to me. Um, and, of course, as Indy's digging through the forest in this movie at the beginning, it, you know, you oh, look, there's a statue behind that that bit of trees. Um, is that... How is that old technology? Is that am I watching an old Disney Plus uh, documentary, thinking I know something cool, or is that no, is that exciting? No, yet? man, it's cool stuff, right? It's it's I don't know that it's cutting edge anymore, although it's being used a lot more today than it was a decade ago. Right. But yes, yeah, so, you know, lidar it creates these what we call bare earth models. Like mm-hmm. you said, it strips away all the vegetation. Now, give you a perspective, right? 20 years ago when I was working in Guatemala, we were mapping some of the, we were out there mapping ancient Maya sites for the first time. These things had never been mapped before. Right. And what you do is you cut transects in the jungle. So, you know, you take a machete and you cut a straight line and then you'd set a point and you cut straight lines in a star pattern or a grid pattern off of that point. And there are times where you would be within 10 feet of, you know, the freaking Maya pyramid and you couldn't see it for the thickness of the undergrowth. Amazing. And, you know, so this takes that entire error factor out of it, right? I mean, you fly yeah. a drone over it, you can map the sites from the sky, almost from space, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is really, really cool stuff. Um, and it's just, you know, it's just one of the things in these toolkits. I mean, what we're talking about tonight, Indiana Jones, you know, there's these great scenes of these massive excavations in Egypt where you have just, mm-hmm. you know, hundreds of people and scaffolds and wheelbarrows moving everywhere and teams of dudes with picks and shovels. And, um, you know, back in the day, heck, even 50 years ago, that was the sort of thing you had to do. You had to move that amount of earth if you wanted to find what was underneath it. And today we have all of these different pieces of technology that 
literally let us see through the earth in some cases, you know, ground penetrating radar, um, magnetometry measures, measures subtle changes in earth's magnetic field. So if there is, you know, a building under the ground or a foundation of a building, that's going to read differently in the, in the magnetometer than the natural soil around it. Um, you know, infrared, all these different things that let us do, you know, we call it remote sensing, right? Mm -hmm. We can, we can look at sites without disturbing them. And so that's, you know, that's really cool. It allows us actually to do a lot less damage. Um, right. you know, archeology span destroys the things we love, right? When you dig a site, you are destroying it. Right. But if you can map that site using these other technologies, it really lets you then call your shots. You can be like, well, you know what? I'm going to look at this specific house that we can see in the mag data. Right. Instead of just like digging randomly like a dog all over the site and hoping you hit something. Yeah. So yeah, it's cool stuff. Yeah. Nice. Well, I guess given the, um, given, I guess the modern day tech technology that, um, has sort of changed the profession, even in the time that you've been in it, um, and given sort of Hollywood's, uh, love of the archaeologist and the paleontologist. I guess I'm going to throw out a few examples here, and I'm going to kind of put you on the spot. Of course, we have Indiana Jones. Um, of course, at the other end of that, you have um, Laura Croft. I think you have Nick Cage's character from um, National Treasure. Um, How dare you, sir? <laughs> I was going to say. Uh, Tom Hanks, maybe, if we're going to talk uh, angels and demons, uh, that sort of uh, the Da Vinci Code. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, of course, Sam Neill's character from Jurassic Park, uh, which was the very first time I saw any of that earth-penetrating uh you know, equipment. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. They're supposedly using ground penetrating radar or something like that in the beginning, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. Given all of those examples. And I mean, that's just literally scratching the surface off of what I could immediately think of uh, about 10 seconds ago. Who's your favorite uh, representation of an archaeologist? And I'm not asking for what's the most realistic, uh, more as I, I, I have a feeling it might be indie, but um, do you, do you have a favorite? Um, especially now that maybe you've grown up a little bit? I mean, I think it's got to be Indy, right? I mean, right. you know, I, we may get into this later, but, you know, Indiana Jones as an archaeologist is wildly problematic, yes. right? Like, like, like once you actually get into it, it's, it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of issues there, yeah. but, uh, but, you know, I don't know a single archaeologist who didn't see that movie when they were a kid and wasn't at some level, inspired by yeah. the, you know, the quest for the mysterious and the forgotten and mm -hmm. all that kind of thing. And, you know, and look, the dude looks good in a hat and a jacket yeah. too. And, you know, I mean, fashions, fashions, fashion, mm -hmm. and you want to look sexy in the field and, you yes. know, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, mm -hmm. Harrison Ford, he's, he's probably sexier than me, but that's okay. That's okay. I can aspire to it. Close. Close. Uh, I do have to say, though, that Harrison Ford may be the only man in history who's pulled off that hat and looked good, other than possibly um, the guy in our band, Ska Mike Fedora. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, that's usually yeah. not a good look, especially in today's Internet world where, uh, yeah. It has a lot of baggage to that now. He kind of ruined it for the rest of us, actually. Exactly. Yeah, you have to sort of pick your pick your headwear carefully. Yes. Now, I guess before we get dug in, um, there is a scene in this movie where, uh, and we are going to get to the actual scene, but um, Belloc and Indy are talking in a bar, and it's after Marion's quote-unquote death, spoilers, and um, 
Bollock says that Indy is a sort of a dark reflection of himself, or sorry, a, a, a light reflection or something like that. And it will take very little to push him into the shadows. Um, given that Indy's killing fools left, right, and center, stealing artifacts, taking them back to his country, I mean, he's putting them in a museum. But right, well, well, is he right, heroic but, you know, here? Early, earlier in the movie, Marcus is joking with him about the fact that he's flagrantly violating international treaties about the preservation of antiquities. Right? Right? Yeah. So like, so like you wonder, right? Like if Belloc is the dark reflection of Indy, yes. then what does that dude into? Yeah. <laughs> I guess hanging out with Nazis. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Right? I mean, I guess I, that, okay, that, that'll do it. That'll yeah. put it over the edge. Yeah. <laughs> but you look at it and go, so I, I was watching because, you know, when you watch these movies and I've seen Raiders uh, more times than I can count. I'm sure you have too. And, um, I've listened to it countless times in recent years while I was painting, but it isn't until you sit down to watch it. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff that's in the movie sort of flushes out uh, or sort of washes out if you've seen it enough times that you may not recognize, you know, maybe that something's problematic, especially if you've been watching it your whole life. And so watching it with sort of fresh eyes, going scene by scene like we're about to do, there are some scenes in here that I went, oh my God, how have I never seen that before? Um, and Indy may not be the nicest guy ever, just just quietly. May, <laughs> may not be a great guy. Well, I mean, there was that whole, you know, Marion was probably 15 or 16 oh, when their relationship started. Oh, we're going to and... talk about that when we get to that scene. Okay, okay, oh. we'll get to that. Okay. In fact, let's talk about that now. Um, okay. <laughs> so they, when they get to the bar in Nepal and we're going to get to this scene, yes, I, I know we're jumping around a little bit here, guys, but we'll get to the actual movie in a sec. Um, uh, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas and, um, Lawrence Kasdan, uh, were sitting around Lawrence Kasdan, of course, uh, wrote the screenplay. Uh, he also wrote the screenplay for my favorite star Wars movie, empire strikes back. And he wrote them sort of simultaneously. So, you know, I love it. But he was given very strict talking points by um, Spielberg and by Lucas. Um, and a lot of the ideas for this movie came from George Lucas. And that whole idea of Marion being young was George Lucas. And you can imagine his little George Lucas voice being like, oh, yeah, like, I, I think she maybe, <laughs> maybe like, uh, you know, 11 or 12, and he's like 25. And apparently Lawrence Kasdan was like, Oh, hell no. No, no, no. Like, no one's going to watch this movie. This is terrible. No. And um, they were talking about it, and uh, Spielberg was like, yeah, I don't think that's a great idea either. Um, but George Lucas, you know, was was like, I want it to be, you know, dangerous and edgy. And Lawrence Kazin was like, that's not dangerous and edgy. That's just terrible. That's just like, creepy. That's just Wrong. awful. Stop. Yeah. And so... Um, in the casting for the movie, um, thankfully, the, the actress who plays uh, Marion is old enough that – was old enough that th you're not actually backdating it and going, oh, God, she was 11. She was actually like 17, 18, and he was like 20s, early 20s sort of thing. And so the way that Lawrence Kasdan got around this weird George Lucas issue – um, to not make Indy, you know, the worst creepster ever was putting in like the spin that she was young. So was he, but he was a couple of years older. And that's why a she says 10, that. maybe. Yeah. Right. I mean, 
but she's yeah. like not you know there's no like weird like as a primary school teacher i heard those lines and was like holy sh- what um that how did i miss that before and it's big you know majorly problematic but Lawrence Kasdan i think did an excellent job of like getting that out fixing it and making the movie not terrible i th- i think it's also one of those things that you know if that written exactly the same way if that movie if the, those lines were in a movie today it would be regarded much differently than it was at the time yeah. as well oh yeah 100% and I mean, the, Tom Selleck was originally cast for this movie, um, and he was supposed to play Indiana Jones. He was everything was set. He had agreed, paperwork was signed, um, but then because he was about to start Magnum PI, they made him stop. Um, ironically, he was working as a handyman when they finished when they wrapped Raiders because they hadn't started Magnum PI, and he wasn't like he was broke, um, and so he was like, I really could have done Raiders. That would have been great. Um, but if you watch, and I did watch some of the screen tests that he did, um, that scene, the and one of the screen tests was the scene in the bar with Marion, um, and they had Sean Young playing Marion. Oh, wow, yeah. that's different. Um, you know, Harrison Ford brings a levity to the role that Tom Selleck. Don't get me wrong, great actor, absolutely love him. He did not bring to that role. Like Indy was a far more straight laced, down the barrel character, and that that came off. It was dark. That scene was like, oh my god! <laughs> I'm glad that was not there, or I would not like this movie the same way. Um, and I think the the casting for Marion was perfect. Um, it, that the bright eyed youth, you know, vigor. Karen Allen. Yeah, yeah. Karen Allen, fantastic. Um, such a talented actress. Not to say that Sean Young isn't. She absolutely is. But she just, I don't think she has the the youthful enthusiasm. And I don't want to say youthful after talking about what we just talked about. But <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But, you know, she's got those big eyes that are so expressive. And, you know, she shows hope. She shows anger. And it's so beautifully done. She's such a talented actress that I think it really plays. Um, and the, the, her interaction with Harrison Ford, that, that chemistry is fantastic. Getting the two of them back together was maybe the single redeemable thing about the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yeah, that was the only redeemable thing about that movie. And I do like to say nice things on this podcast, but that is not a movie I enjoy. But, it's not yeah. one we're going to talk about. No. Well, I'm, I'm sure we'll mention <laughs> other movies along the way. Um, but uh, now I will slip a couple of times in the the recording of this podcast because I almost just did it then. And this is for the listeners. Um, Aaron and I have been friends for, as you can tell, yonks, as they say in Australia, um, for a million years. And in university, when we were in a band touring together, um, we had a million friends named Aaron. And there and that was hugely problematic in like the first two weeks of our friendship. And at a gig um, where we were dressed up as Madonna and her backing band, and we were covering Madonna music for Halloween. Um, I think you were helping out at that gig because um, I don't think it we was had complicated. A... Yeah, you were dressed I... as Billy Corgan. Yeah, it was bad. It was very, it was a rough night. I called Aaron to the stage, and you know everyone came, and I was looking for this Aaron. Um, and so I turned to you and said, you know, something like Ahab. And you said, R. And so for many years, and to this day, I still call you Ahab. And I think I'm the only one. 
So if I slip and call Aaron Ahab at any point, it's not that he's a sideline as a pirate, although that would be excellent. Um, mm. That is that is what I will do. So uh, without further ado, Ahab, shall we start this party? Let's go for it. Right on. Um, now, I, I guess there is one other talk. Oh, God, I, there is a talking point I have in giant letters before we start this. Um, sound effects. One of the things that I've loved about this movie since I was a little kid was the sound of this movie. Not only do you have the John Williams score, um, and that is fantastic. Did you know that the Indiana, or was it the the Raiders March, as it's called, um, which is Indiana Jones theme, um, mm-hmm. which is dun 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 dun, and the other part to it, um, those were separately written, and they were two separate scores um, that. John Williams turned into Steven Spielberg and said, here are the two. What do you think? And he said, yes, both. And so <laughs> he stapled them together and one became the bridge of the whole piece, um, which is. I did not know that. Yeah, Good fu- stuff. Yeah. There's a ton of little things in this movie that are fascinating, like the fact that there's a number of actors in this movie that reappear um, who play multiple characters. Um, and we'll get to those in a sec, but, um, the, the thing I really want to talk about was how cleverly they did the sound effects in this movie. Um, for example, if in all Indiana Jones movies, when he hits somebody or when someone's punched, there is a sound like no other sound in the universe, like a human being being punched. And it was created that, that thick thud was created by taking a baseball bat and wailing on a uh, pile of leather jackets. Um, And, for example, Indiana's pistol has that deep boom to it. Um, It's actually a Winchester Um, (laughs) 30-30. Right? (laughs) You're like, well, no wonder it sounds big. Um, But as a kid, man, I, I was mesmerized by this movie. Um, and yeah, they what, don't even get me started about how they made the whip noises, but it's like, there's the sound alone makes this movie. And, um, le- I mean, the casting, the action it's, it's top tier. And though we're going to nitpick, I think a little bit today, uh, at some of the maybe rid- ridiculous, uh, absurdities, um, that maybe don't stand up to today, or as you were talking about earlier, Aaron, how things have our acceptances of things have changed. Uh, I think that we are going to get into, uh, yeah, our true love of this movie. Would you agree? I, I agree. Right on, right on. Uh, deep words, man. Deep words. Um, now, did you know that the this movie has a death count of fifty? Only fifty people were killed making this movie. <laughs> Um, not in real life. Wait, wait, making... Okay. No, sorry. All right, in, okay. in the movie. Sorry, I said that wrong. In the movie. Nine were killed by Indiana. Nine were killed by Marion. 32 were killed by the Ark. FYI. Um, so in case you're wondering... And uh, that little thing at the beginning where it says no animals were harmed uh, when they're making this movie, well, that is not on this movie because a lot of the snakes were harmed. In fact, the RSPCA shut down filming of this movie for a day. Um, but many Nazis were apparently harmed in the making of this movie, which makes it okay. So, it's just uh, as well. Yeah, exactly. Now, one last fun fact. Did you know, and I didn't know this until literally 10 minutes ago, 
did you know that Raiders of the Lost Ark is actually, or the Indiana Jones movies are uh, were put out or filmed, whatever you want to say, out of sequence? I did not know I, that. I did know that, as a matter of fact, yeah. Yeah. yeah he, he gets, he gets the, his character gets younger as Harrison Ford got older. Yep. Yeah. Because Temple of Doom takes place before Raiders. Um, which, yeah, I didn't know that. That, yeah. Which, but it makes a lot more sense. But of course, then in the packing scene where he's pulling out his gun and saying, I don't believe in superstitious mumbo jumbo. Um, really? Because you saw it in India. Anyway. Right. For, right. For a dude who saw somebody literally take someone's still beating heart out of their chest and set it on fire. Yes. Strong words. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, I suppose that's why he's got a gun. Um, adds new scene to that. But, uh, oh, sorry, new meaning to that scene. Well, let's let's start with the actual movie. Now, um, this movie, of course, starts with that very cinematic uh, Paramount mountain logo that then fades into the real logo. Uh, and that was actually the very last thing filmed in the entire movie. Uh, so much so that one of the producers uh, was left to drive around uh, the big island of Hawaii uh, looking for a mountaintop that they could film to use for that. And the rest of the film crew went home, except for him and a camera crew, to film that one shot. Um, hmm. So, fun fact. Movie ends with the last shot filmed. Um, now, of course... We are in Peru. We know that because the airplane that picked up Indy at the end of the scene has the uh, letters on it. OB3PO, um, I think is what it is. And it's, of course, OB1 Kenobi and 3PO put together um, on the side of the plane. But in doing so, it, it marks the plane as Peruvian, uh, I guess. Just the fun facts you find out when you're researching stuff. Um, but w I thought that was interesting because as a kid, um, A, I missed the giant 1936 at the very front, like, you know, part of the caption. Um, I always wondered where that was and when it was. Um, because I guess as a kid, my understanding of World War II was a little different. And I was thinking this took place, you know, maybe during World War II. And then as I grew up, I realized, no, it's before World War II, but I didn't quite understand when until I watched it for this. And then in giant numbers on the very first shot, it said 1936. But yeah. Oops. Um, now, of course, Indiana Jones, um, we see, you know, the, the, the two henchmen or henchmen, uh, sidekicks, buddies, joining Indy, walking through the jungle. Um, there are the, the baggage guys. Um, they tie up the horses slash donkeys, uh, and then they find the ruins. There's the famous guide or baggage man handler who sees um, the statue, screams, runs away. Um, and this there's is a all lot of before dudes screaming in this movie. Yeah. I felt like when I rewatched it, mm -hmm. there's 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 a lot of like screamy guy reaction shots all throughout yes. the movie. Weirdly, not a lot of women screaming in this movie. A lot of dudes. Yeah, no, Marion doesn't really scream. She kind of shouts. Yeah. No. But the next, Willie in the next movie does all the screaming for her. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, Ooh. good call. Yeah. I, I once actually was watching that movie and had a housemate say, can you please turn that off? All I hear is a woman screaming. I said, oh, yeah, good point. I'll turn that off now. Um, now, let's, let's talk, Ahab. Now, you are an archaeologist. You have been on these digs through the rainforest. You have worked with local guides, 
um, and you know, people who help you get out there to find what you're looking for. Let's let's get into it right off the bat. How realistic is this? Uh, you know, it's totally realistic, right? I mean, in the days before lidar and remote sensing, you know, work whether you're working in Central America or South America as a non-local archaeologist, you know, the best thing you can do is go talk to people who live there. Right. Right. They know they know where the sites are. Mm -hmm. Um, They know where even even today, you know, in my work here in Tennessee, your average farmer probably knows about you probably knows much more about the archaeology of any given parcel of land along the river than I do because they've been farming it for generations. Right. Right. And so, yeah, you know, like we're we're coming in and asking people for help. So finding people that are guides that can take you out to these places, is, it's the only way to, it's the only way to do it. Right. Yeah. You know, you'd never, you'd never get in. You'd never get out. Otherwise you need, you need help. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you really would need the local help, wouldn't you? Especially going into rainforest. I mean, you've actually done that, that, that on my many places I've been to the middle of a rainforest away from civilization. I can't say I've done that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that can't be easy. Something goes wrong out there. Like it, you really do need the locals. Poison darts, mostly. Yeah, exactly. We'll get to the Javitos in a second. Um, well, let, <laughs> let's talk. Because, I mean, then, um, of course, one of his uh, quote-unquote sidekicks uh, cocks his pistol. And then... I, I believe a soon-to-be ex-sidekick yes, is exactly. the term we like to use. Yes, yes there you go. Um, and, of course, Indy whips around, um, whips around and whips the gun out of his hand. Uh, and we get the, the wonderful shot of Harrison Ford you know, recoiling his uh, whip. And that's, you know, one of the great reveals in cinema. Uh, Now, did you know that the guy who is whipped, who pulled the pistol and cocks it, he's in another part of the movie. Would you like to know which? I would love to know which, Brad. Um, You know, the Nazi monkey that we're going to be talking about at length? He's not the monkey. No, he's the monkey handler. Oh, okay. The guy with the eye patch. Yeah, he is the same guy. Um, you know, hashtag brown man works, I guess. Um, again, <laughs> whew, a little problematic at times. <laughs> oh, awkward, but yeah. Well I'll, done. Just, well done. Just wait till we get to Nepal, man. It gets, it gets serious. All right. Um, so yeah, then, um, we, the other sidekick, um, a very young, the very first appearance of a very famous actor, Alfred Molina. Um, first time he ever appears on film is this scene. Um, and he, of course, joins Indy in breaking into the tomb. Um, of course, I'm going to get into all the archaeological bits of this in a second. But, um, of course, there's the tarantulas where the, you know, they're, they're sweeping the tarantulas off the back. Um, funny story, apparently, Alfred Molina, they covered him in uh, tarantulas and they went to film it and they weren't moving. And, he, you know, he's... They yeah they keep saying oh act scared and he's like I don't have to act I'm actually terrified thank you, um, but they're not moving and um, Steven Spielberg you know turns to the animal handler and says why you know can we get them doing something like how do we do this get a little more action out of them and they said well we could put a female on him and uh, apparently the second they put the female tarantula on him. The, his entire back turned into a seething mass of spiders. And uh, he, yeah, 
did not quite enjoy that. But uh, it made it made the scene. Um, and of course, Indy's uh, deadpan delivery on you know just swiping the the spiders away. Um, also, it really set a tone for the movie. Um, now there's the traps. Um, we have the light sensor. Um, pretty advanced. Uh, I don't know about you going through uh, Mayan ruins. Ever run into a light sensor that sends uh, spears out? Strangely, no. That's uh, a little disappointing. I was hoping you'd seen that one. Um, we have the chasm that must be swung over. Uh, we have the darts launcher. Uh, and, of course, then, then the actual statue itself. Um, now, there are, I mean, clearly, traps have been in place in many cultures, uh, in many tombs, uh, at least that is been what I've been led to believe, especially in Egyptian temples uh, and um, uh, pyramids. Is that actually a thing? Um, do you need to look out for traps, or would the ravages of time have destroyed them, or did they just not exist in the first place? I mean, so I'll preface this by saying I'm not an Egyptologist, right? right. But my understanding is that it's some periods in Egyptian history, some of the tombs certainly had dummy tombs in them, right? Right. So, you know, this is a thing all throughout human history, right? The Egyptian tombs were looted within a couple hundred years of when they were built. Right. Um, you know, the entire Aztec civilization was built on looting the remains of the Toltec civilization. You know, like this is just, yeah. you know, this is something we do as humans is we take the past and bring it back and put it on display and, you know, mm -hmm. legitimize ourselves by claiming ancestry to it. But, you know, the thing here, of course, is that what he's after is a religious idol, not a tomb. Right. And, you know, religion doesn't do anybody any good if no one can see it. You know, right. if you've got like the all powerful, whatever, whatever, whatever idol, man, that's where you build a platform and put it out for everybody to see. True. You know, yeah. at least historically. Right. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, at the same time, you know, whatever. OK, you got to hide the thing away. Yeah, Archaeologically, it's 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 kind of fun that, you know, he goes after the gold idol in this miraculously intact temple with all of this advanced uh, weaponry and mm -hmm. traps and everything. He's just like, yeah, whatever. Well, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, we, we don't care about that. No. We don't need to know anything else about that. We know everything we need to. Really, uh, and I love the practiced ease in which he takes the club and puts it down on the first trigger, and the dart shoots yes. out. And had the piece of wood been anywhere else, he would have been impaled. But right. you know, shook and but he doesn't even blink. It's like, yep, like, no ah, problem. The old trigger in the floor trap. I've seen this many times before, and you're going, "Have you though?" I mean, okay, 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 we'll go with that. Um, but yeah, so and I do love the. The, the just the reverence in which um, the the idol is sort of filmed as as Harrison Ford of course walks up to the spot where it is, um, he's completely underlit by that like golden light, and it really does. And as a kid, I never noticed that, but as I watch it as an adult, I'm like, where's that light coming from? This is the brightest tomb I've ever seen. Um, yeah. But yeah, it it it's so it works. It's so good, um, and you really do get the feel. I mean, George Lucas wrote this script as sort of a nod to the old Republic serials. Um, you know, the pulpy serials that were um, it. You know, that you'd see in movie theaters um, as part of you know a double feature. They would have the little like Flash Gordon, uh, Dick Tracy those sort of serials and this is sort of a love affair nod to those like star wars was to flash gordon this is more towards um 
you know, Tarzan or, you know, those pulp serials of way back in the day. And you really do. I mean, this movie is so much fun. And to look at it in, in a practical light sometimes really does stop that fun. And so I'm going to stop doing that right now. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's, it looks great. And it, but it's one of those things you look at and go, where's that light coming from? But anyway, um, yeah. Well, of course, there's the great getting the idol scene where he takes the, uh, the sand you know, puts a sack of sand on the uh, on the pedestal, takes the idol, tries to sneak out. Of course, it doesn't work out. the The platform drops, and then all hell breaks loose. And we get the uh, get the very famous "throw me the idol and I'll throw you the whip" as Alfred Molina jumps ahead, um, takes the whip so he can't follow him, and then Indy throws the idol, and of course he doesn't throw the whip. And uh, yeah, as a kid, man. It wasn't, I know a lot of people were freaked out by the spikes coming out of the walls and the dead body on it. Man, him jumping over that chasm and the wall coming down and he grabs the root and Harrison Ford's got that genuine smile and joy of, I've got the root, it's good. And then it pulls out Uh as a kid. Oh my God. I swear to God, that made me nightmare. That gave me nightmares for years. Like, oh my God, stop that. Um yeah, just so fantastic. Uh, and then, of course, the ball comes out. Um, and, you know, as a kid, wh- why didn't he just let the ball go? Um, but then that would seal the tomb. So it all makes sense as an adult. Um, now, that whole scene, anything you want to add to that, um, going off of what I've been saying? No, dude, not much. All right, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Well, let's uh, let's talk about the dark, shadowy Indy, shall we? Um, because Indy jumps out, of course, and lands in the lap of Balak, um, or Balak, as uh, John Rhys Davies calls him later. Uh, and of course, that is the ar- the French archaeologist who uh, works for the Nazis, and he is surrounded by the Hevitos, uh, the local tribe, who have the poison darts and the arrows that seem to bend in the air, and spears. Um, and, yeah, all the poison, all the painful, sharp implements. Um, <laughs> and, of course, Balak takes the idol from Indy, and there's that wonderful speech of, once again, what, uh, what is yours is mine. Uh, and I think it really does just set up the movie beautifully because you not only get your hero and a real feel of your hero within the first couple of minutes is how he handles, you know, the terrors of the tomb and him being having a gun pulled on him and being betrayed. And then, you know, almost with that sense of humor along the way snuck in that Harrison Ford's delivery, you know, gives, but then you also have the antagonist and you have your villain who is, you know, intelligent, well-spoken, speaks of Itos, um, you know, unscrupulous and also, you know, has the maniacal laugh, straight out of Predator when, um, you know, Harrison Ford's running off later. And it's just, it's just such a wonderful way to start the movie. Um, so Ahab, as a, as an archeologist yourself, Nazis aside, which, um, which of the archeologists do you think you more, uh, go with? Uh, I know Indy's probably sexier, but you are a pretty clever guy. I, I almost want to say you've got the whole um, speaking the local language, doing your research, rather than you know punching out a guy and you know <laughs> throwing sand on top of a pedestal. That was always sort of my impression. <laughs> um, which do you think, or do you think you're a little bit of both? Well, I feel like you know you haven't really arrived as an archaeologist until you have a French nemesis. 
Nice. Um, so, you know, I'm still working on that. There's there's some candidates. I'm taking applications. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> right on. Right on. Uh, of course, then this starts the foot chase through the jungle because Balak holds up the fertility idol and everyone, uh, you know, bows down and Indy makes a, a dead run for it, runs for the plane. And then we see um, and he, we see him yelling for Jacques, 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 start the plane, start the plane. Uh, and um, I love I just it's one of the things that Steven Spielberg does so well. There's just a few moments in the movie where, you know, the greater action's happening. And, you know, you see Indy coming over the crest of the hill, and then you see all the Javitos coming after him, weapons drawn, ready to go. And Jacques stands there, and he sees it, and Indy yells. He looks up, sees it. Indy yells again. Jacques looks down at his fishing line, sees he's got something, and you can just see it on his face. He's like, son of a... Why me? I just caught a fish. Um, but, like, in the in the bar scene that we'll get to in Nepal, where a bullet goes through one of the barrels, and liquor keeps, you know, starts flowing out, and uh, Marion pops her head up and takes a hit, um, you know, a sip of alcohol. It's just those little moments that really do make this movie, you know, great. Uh, but then, yeah, of course, Indy dives in, jumps onto the plane, um, as in jumps onto the... Uh, Snake. Well, that too, but jumps onto the <laughs> pontoon as the plane takes off, um, you know, being showered with darts and arrows. And then, of course, gets in the plane and finds Reggie the snake. Um, yes. Yeah. So so as a side. Yes. Sir. Um, is this is this a George Lucas connection? You know, like natives with blow darts and arrows can't hit the broadside of a running archaeologist. <laughs> Just like stormtroopers, is this a thing? Could be, man. Could be. Uh, that, okay. Yeah. Look. Um, I mean, as I said, on the side of the plane, there are Star Wars uh, lettering. So, uh, could be. Uh, if anything, uh, you know, Ewoks were a little more deadly with the spears, but you know, you know, who knows? Who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe the Havitos would eat stormtroopers too. You know. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Play drums with their helmets. If only they had them. Uh, but yeah, then we get a look at probably the most uh, realistic part of the movie right off the bat, which is indie teaching. Um, now, I'm not even going to get into the weird, um, all the women in the class love him. You know, they're trying to set him up as a sex symbol kind of character. Um, because originally when, I guess, when Steven Spielberg, when Steven Spielberg was in Hawaii with George Lucas, when George Lucas was trying to hide from the release weekend of A New Hope. And over the course of that weekend, um, at one point, Steven Spielberg said, I'd really love to have a shot at doing a Bond movie. And George Lucas says, no, you don't want to do that. You want to do this other thing. And the other thing was Indiana Jones. And so they were trying to set up Indy as sort of this sex symbol, um, like James Bond, you know, hard drinking, sex symbol, sleeps with a lot of women kind of thing. But Lawrence Kasdan, in writing Indy, dialed a lot of that back. Um, and I'm really kind of glad um, because it kind of made Indy a more endearing character, um, especially since when Harrison Ford sort of got his hands on him, uh, he kind of became le less effective. Um, like, like, you can't imagine James Bond making half of the mistakes that Indiana Jones does in this movie, and he makes mistakes all the time. But it's still cool. He's still heroic. And as a kid, you're still going, yeah, go Indy. Um, you, you with me? 
I'm with you. All right. Now, as someone who started teaching in the era of chalkboards, can I just say that Harrison Ford in a dark suit, drawing, you know, talking about the 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 dig on the whiteboard, lecturing to his class, the fact that he's not covered in chalk dust from the waist down or from the, you know, on his elbows is amazing. Um, clearly, Hollywood. Um, because when I first started, I always wore black my first couple of years teaching because, you know, you're always around children and, you know, you don't want things to get dirty. Uh, and yeah, chalk and dark clothing do not make a good combination. The day they put a, a whiteboard in my classroom was a wonderful day. Uh, yes. I also, you know, when we first meet him in the classroom, right, the first thing that happens in the classroom mm-hmm. is he's talking about this one site and lamenting the fact that it was all looted except for this one tomb, mm-hmm. which then, of course, is exactly what he was doing, doing. in the shot before Four. this one was looting, looting. a site. Yeah. <sighs> and then Marcus shows up and, as you say, flounce the international rules of uh, the acquirement of antiquities. Right. I'm sure you came by these honestly. Exactly. I'm sure this was fine. <laughs> yes. Oh, of course, Indy. I'll buy your pieces. Don't worry about it. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Ooh, these are good. Um, <laughs> like, he's almost surprised. Marcus is such a subtle and fun character. <laughs> Um, but yes. And then of course we get the introduction of, uh, the army intelligence officers. Now I almost said CIA, but they didn't come until world after world war two. So, um, let's talk about the exposition scene, um, where Indy and Marcus, uh, you know, meet with the two sitting army intelligence officers in plain suits and have a chat. Um, did you notice the larger of those two intelligence officers, um, he was Jack Porkins in A New Hope. No kidding. No kidding. And he was uh, Lieutenant Eckhard in uh, the Batman movie, the original one, with uh, the Michael Keaton one. Huh. Yes. Fun fact. Uh, I recognized him this time and went, oh, my God, it is. And I had not noticed that before. At least I didn't think I did. Um, but he's shown up in a bunch of things. Uh, but, yes. So I guess as an archaeologist, let's fact check this one. How many times have you met with CIA operatives uh, to talk about ways to uh, stop evil organizations from acquiring occult artifacts from around the world? I can't tell you that. (laughs) You can't tell me that. It's a secret. Um, But yeah, I mean, how often in movie scenes do you get... Uh, a scene where they have to explain the plot of the movie, right? There, there's heavy exposition so that you as the audience understand what the goal of this movie is, what, what needs to be overcome. In this case, you must find the arc. Um, but I think that, you know, for as quote-unquote text-heavy as the script is during this scene, my God, is it entertaining and engaging to watch it's punchy, right? It, it right. gets it. It gets all of it done. You get the you get the whole story of you know not only like what is what is the MacGuffin for this entire mm-hmm. thing, but why are we looking for it? What is the history of it? And you know, it's just like this nice nice little bow just around the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think part of that is, um, I mean, just the. I mean, there's the little subtle, you know, they mentioned Tannis and then, of course, um, Indiana and Marcus get that look in their eye and they're looking at each other. And there's like you get that that that. Oh, there's something 
I should be paying attention to here. And just those subtle nods to the audience of, oh, this is important. I should pay attention to this. And then it seems as though Harrison Ford has an honest enthusiasm and gets really excited about the project um, in a way that, you know, watching this, I went, man, that, I mean, he really sold that. Like, I actually think that he's really excited about talking about this. Um, yeah, I just thought that was really well done. Well, of course, then we get to Indy going home and Marcus coming over and saying, yes, you got the gig. Now, I don't know about you, but I dress like that when I'm at home. <laughs> and I know you do. I can, I, I can confirm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the smoking jacket and all. Um, now, that was a holdover for a scene that was never filmed. Um, in the original script, he was supposed to be entertaining a young woman. Uh, and by a young woman, I mean one of his students. Uh, and I'm glad that, that, that Lawrence Kasdan cut that out. Again, cutting yeah. out the creepiness. Uh, but yeah, that, that costume was still there, and so they stuck him in it. Um, and I do love the only things that he packs, of course, are the only things that you'll see for the rest of the movie. It's very much the, you know, it's used in every movie ever, but it's the, there's his shirt, there's his hat, there's the gun, there's the whip, there's his pants, done. That's all he needs, because that's all he's going to wear for the rest of the movie. The man has no spare pairs of underwear. <laughs> right? Uh, at least he didn't pack them. Um, maybe he's going commando, who knows? Um, but yeah. And, and of course, we talked about the I don't believe in the supernatural uh, mumbo jumbo, very Han Solo. And then, of course, at the same time, pulls his gun. Um, but yeah, of course, then we jump to uh, Indy being on the plane and we get that scene um, that has, it becomes, it's one of those things that is Indiana Jones movies are now famous for, where you have the music playing, the indie music playing, and the plane taking off and you see the plane flying in the air and then it's superimposed on the map and you get the red line and you get the journey that he goes from spot to spot to spot, um, which was actually a nod to those old serials that I was talking about before because that was the only way they could really show that in the olden days. And so Spielberg, as a nod, put that in the movie and man i think it's so effective um it's 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 iconic i mean it's really yeah it's amazing yeah it is and you get a feel for where things are in the world because some of the spots uh you know the average movie going american at the time may not have known where nepal was or marrakesh or you know anywhere else um i think that was super i think it's a really effective storytelling tool um, and you also get a, a, a real feel for what a globe-trotting movie this is, uh, epic adventure sort of thing. Um, now, Nepal, my favorite. Let's talk about Nepal. Now, Nepal, there's, uh, it starts with the introduction of Marion, um, where we have her in the drinking competition. Uh, and, of course, she's faking out her opponent, who has the largest hands ever. Um, and I do love the way that shot, because, of course... He does the last shot. It looks like he's going to win. looks like Marion's in trouble. And then I love that you don't even get the reaction shot for Marion. He drinks. He sort of leans back and then thud out. And that's how it ends. Um, but then Marion, of course, instantly sober. Uh, and you go, ah, oh, that's not how I imagined that going. Um, 
did that remind you of any nights of us throwing darts in university? Because <laughs> I'm just saying. May have thought that at the time. <laughs> nice. Yes. Yeah. The jukebox yeah. was better where we were. <clears throat> um, but yes. Um, but yeah, I, again, with music, there's no music in a lot of the scenes in Nepal, and they really do sort of depend on the ambient sounds of uh, the wind. And I think that really does help sell that scene as being, you know, in the far reaches, you know, the ends of the earth. It's It's just super... It's super effective and it's cool. It looks it looks great. And then, of course, we get sort of the second introduction of Indiana Jones um, after the bar is cleared, um, and you see Karen Allen, you know, clearing tables. You see Indy's shadow thrown up on the wall, and it's that that great heroic uh, profile that you know right off the bat. And then, of course, she turns around, you know, appears to be happy to see him see him and then slugs him in the face uh and of course getting past all that problematic dialogue about being a child uh i was a child you knew what you were doing exactly yes yes no yeah and can i point out that and i know i shouldn't point out these things but he's wearing literally the same outfit that he was you know, to quote the soldiers in Vietnam, humping through the jungle with uh, just, you know, a couple of scenes before Sub-Zero Nepal, same outfit, same pants, same jacket. And would you, having been in the jungles of Guatemala, in that, in the way that they are representing it in that movie, it appears to be a hot season. Would you be wearing a leather jacket? Hmm. Now, look, you know, Ash Ketchum wore the same outfit all over the world chasing Pokemon. And we didn't give him any trouble for it. You know, Speak just for let yourself. Indiana Jones have his moment. <laughs> it's true. He does look good, though. Looks good. Looks good. Um, now, of course, um, there's the wonderful scene where they do, you know, they negotiate, um, and Indy gives her the money, and she almost doesn't take it, and Indy says, you know exactly the piece, um, you know, that was great. I thought that was a really fantastic scene. Um, George Lucas, for all of his creepiness, did an excellent thing here because he ed- he did the final edit of this movie before uh, after Spielberg finished it. Um, Spielberg trusted Lucas, you know, handed him the final movie, and Lucas cut out seven and a half minutes of the movie. One of the things he cut out was at the end of this scene um, w- before Indy leaves. Um. They kiss. Um, Karen Allen kisses him, and it moves on. Uh, but, of course, by not kissing him, it leaves that tension in. And I'm glad that that isn't there. Um, I think George Lucas did a wonderful job of cutting it there. Um, so we get a really, in- you know, it-, it builds that tension between the two of them that they will resolve in later scenes. Um, but, yeah, the movie would be very different if they had kissed before the creepy Gestapo guy showed up. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> I agree. Yeah, and then their first kiss, once he uh, later on, spoiler alert, realizes she's still alive, mm-hmm. is uh, much more powerful. Yeah. Exactly, right? Um, now, I was trying to, I was taking notes for this, and I actually went back and rewatched the uh, the scene where the creepy Gestapo guy shows up repeatedly trying to figure out what his name was. Um, he's never introduced in the movie. 
Um, instead, his name is, uh, I believe it's in the credits, it's Tolt, um, and it, which is apparently German for death. Uh, but he, isn't, he only utters apparently 12 lines in English, and the rest of it's in German. Uh, and the actor who portrays him um, was picked because apparently Steven Spielberg said he had a definite um, Peter Lorre like uh, quality, mm. which you can see. I mean, he is by mm-hmm. definition the creepiest. Um, but yeah, he comes in, and I love how strong and how independent Karen Allen comes off, both in the scene confronting Indy and then in standing up to this guy. Of course, then she's smart enough to say, Oh, this is bad. I should probably tell him some things. Um, but even then, doesn't give up. Uh, all the information, even though she appears to give in. Very cleverly done by Karen Allen and the way this is written. I, I think she comes off as a, just a fantastic character in this. Would you agree? I agree. All right, on. Now, we get the bar fight because Indy sees this, walks in, and all hell breaks loose. And, of course, we have those mach- submachine guns. I believe they're M- MP36s, not to show my World War II nerdiness. But of course, they sound like heavy machine guns when they're fired, and Indy's firing his loudest gun ever, and it is just a fantastic, um, brutal fight. But I don't know if it's it was just me, but watching it this time, I always thought that Indy, you know, was could fight with his hands and was you know was savvy. But watching it this time, Indy comes off really scrappy, like he is he's fighting dirty and he's fighting dirty the whole movie. But yeah, you know, right? I, I noticed that in later scenes when I rewatched it. Yeah. That there was, I, you know, first time when I first noticed, I almost chalked it up to like, Oh, they, you know, they didn't have a very good like fight coordinator mm-hmm. on the set or something. But, but no, I think, I think you're right. I think it's kind of a, like he was never intended to be, you know, James Bond who right. knew every martial art known to man. No, he's just, he's kind of making a go at it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think that comes across and man, it, 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 you know, when he gets hit sometimes, man, it hurts. Uh, and in fact, <laughs> I have a list of injuries that Indy sustains in this movie and it's ugly. Um, it's, it's really unpleasant. And you know, this, I guess when I was a kid and I don't know about you, I were a similar age, but we, this was a movie that I was take, I saw this in the theater. Um, and I would have been six because it was 81. And I remember like adoring this movie and watching it several times in the cinema and having the, the picture book that went with it. And that's like a book full of photos um, that told the movie in sequential order. And I still remember um, being dragged on a business trip with my mom and me just sitting in hotel after hotel going through that book page by page by page. And I remember it specifically not only because I adored, you know, loved going through it, but also I got so many freaking paper cuts from that book. Um, (laughs) But, you know, it was a labor of love. I was like, God, again? But it was so good um, that, so yeah. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I actually don't remember the first time I saw this movie. Um, Mm -hmm. But I remember having... One of those little kaleidoscope vision things. Yes. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. The little binoculars yeah. with the little circular circular thing of pictures you'd put in the top and then mm-hmm. click through. I remember having a 
Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, that's awesome. Set of those. And yeah, the same, I'm sure, you know, it was almost, I almost guarantee you it was exactly the same photos from oh, yeah. the movie and the book you're talking about. 100% right? that sequential it sequential sequence, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh man, that would have been awesome because I had the Godzilla one of those. Uh, and of course, oh, nice. yeah, right? But those were, I mean, it's such a fantastic bit of technology. Here, put this thing up to the light, look through the lenses and see a picture that you stick in it. It's so medieval, but so, you know, kids in the 70s, 80s loved it. Um, but I remember this movie. I mean, my parents took me to this movie and my parents didn't take me to a lot of movies, but they took me to this movie, I think twice in the cinema way back when, because I begged to see it. And this movie is rated PG. But that is before PG-13 came in. And this movie was literally a hair's breadth from uh, rated R. In fact, it was rated R. And what made it the final hard R was at the end. This is in the 80s hard R, which is, you know, really hard to come by. But it was the very end when, um, was it Bollock or was it the nuts? I think it was Bollock's head explodes. Spoilers. Um, in the last scene, that was the thing that made it was the final straw for hard R. And so what they did was they superimposed some flame over the top and it blocked some of the head exploding and it passed Mm. as PG, but for a PG movie, oh my God, as someone who just had to get special permission to show, um, Harry Potter and the philosopher's stone to a group of nine year olds. I can't imagine showing this to a, th- a six-year-old. It's terrifying. And this, the fight scene, I mean, there's a guy on fire, and he gets shot in the head bl- yeah. like bl- graphically. And then Indy's fighting another guy who's swinging at him with his arms are on fire. What the hell? Right? Like, I, you're a father. It's a heck of a thing, man. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Would, you, would you show this movie? <clears throat> Have you shown this movie to your kids? Yeah, I don't know actually. Um, not not the youngest one. Yeah, I was gonna watch it last night, and she was still awake. And I was like, and I was, you know, started thinking about it. I was like, I'm pretty sure there's a dead body within the first five minutes. Yes, I really, this is not ideal. I made better decisions yeah. than this. So yeah, I put it off till after she went to bed. Yeah, man, but I, it's not just me, right? This movie's brutal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oof. Unbelievable. Well, okay, let's let's talk about another one of these fun actors. Um, you know the scene when um, Indy is grappling with a big, strong Sherpa-looking guy, and uh, there's a gentleman. You know the the Nazi yells, "Shoot him!" And um, then he says he says something like, "Shoot, Shoot both of them, them both." Yeah, exactly. And they both look at like what the guy who's looking surprised, who's grappling with Indy appears elsewhere in the movie. Would you like to know which role he plays? Is he the monkey handler? Better than that. <laughs> in fact, it's the character that I, I, I'm anticipating you having a cute comment about when it appears about me. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Yes. Ooh. Yes. Ooh. Yes. Do you know who I'm talking about? Mr. Mr. Propeller? Yes. The bald German in this in the plane scene is the same actor, um, right. wearing a wig, and in the scene where they're holding Marion back, it is very problematic in today's world to watch that scene carefully because the guy holding Marion and the guy next to him are both Asian only in that their eyes have had makeup to look Asian. 
It is Ooh. so bad. And you watch it and going, you didn't do that. And it's one of those things I haven't looked up when, you know, during the scene in a million years, because I always paint through it when I'm painting toy soldiers. I could not believe that was there. Anyway, problematic. Um, but yeah, I thought that scene was amazing. And again, one of the things that terrified me as a kid was, and um, I guess it was because I was a little kid and I just touched a hot stove and I learned not to touch a hot pot. I then saw this move in the movie theater and was like, oh, I know what you're talking about, buddy. You know, when he grabs the um, the medallion and burns, it burns the thing into, you know, the, the image into his hand. And then he sticks it in the snow. I was like, oh, buddy, I, I've been there. I know that feeling. Um, but yeah. Use butter, not snow. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man, I just stuck it under a sink for a million years. Anyway, um, Ooh, but ah. yeah, not, not a good, not, it was not a good choice. But uh, this scene, again, how it would, again, so many iconic parts to it. Um, so many things from this scene have been used in other movies. It just, it, it, it sets it up. And between this and the beginning of the movie, I really do feel like it sets the stage for the rest of the movie that, you know, we will see how Indy interacts with both women, um, you know, enemies and everything else. Um, it's just... Very, what you get is what you get, and you don't get any big um, surprises, so to speak. Would you agree? I agree. All right. One of these days, you're going to say something besides yes, and I agree when I ask you that, you <laughs> jerk. <sighs> but, okay. You, t- you, you told me to be positive, Brad. <laughs> I did. I did. Well, you can be positive about being you negative. You told me be, be positive and watch your language. And, that, you know, there's not a lot of wiggle room there, man. Spoilers. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, people know on Cast Dice we try not to be negative. Uh, although I may be poking a lot of holes in this movie. Um, again, it's out of love. Uh, well, we get to Cairo, and um, we get Sala. Is it, Sorry, is go it, ahead. It is Cairo, isn't it? My it head is Cairo. was Marrakesh or something. Okay. I think they take a left... Oh, did they film it in Marrakesh? There is a Marrakesh scene, but it is Cairo. They arrive in Cairo, and that's where they see Sala. Um, of course, Sala played by John Reese davies um, a very white man, but, you know, we'll, we'll go past that. Um, Gimli himself. But I think it's fantastic that he was cast. His voice alone made the character. I think he was perfectly cast for the role. Um, do you know who was, who was supposed to be in that role and was signed and then also couldn't get out of a television obligation? Hmm... Um, no. Danny DeVito. No kidding. Right? And then, you know, a few years later... That is a whole different thing. Right? That would have been a very... Can you imagine this movie with Tom Selleck, Sean Young, and Danny DeVito? Right? I mean, I love it. Yeah? (laughs) I mean, don't get me wrong. Romancing the Stone is a hell of a movie. I absolutely love that movie and Danny DeVito and it's absolutely a chip off of this block but uh and he's great in that movie but John Reese davies is the perfect Sala um of course we get the first appearance of the monkey uh I love that Marion is you know like oh great this is awesome monkey and um everyone's like oh cool then we won't throw him out and she's like oh no you 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 can get rid of it and then immediately turns around and falls in love with the with the monkey um, spy right. monkey spy monkey um, and then of course um, 
they get they go to the marketplace and it you know the monkey disappears and you know goes to tell the guy from the pistol from the beginning of the movie with the eye patch uh, exactly what's going on and um there's that wonderful bit of dialogue that i just don't see in other movies where uh, she's like, oh, where'd the monkey go? Clearly not paying attention to the main character. And the main character is like, yeah, it's a date. And she's like, what is it? It's a date. You can eat it. Um, and I just, again, beautiful bit of uh, script writing by Lawrence Kasdan. Uh, and then, of course, we get the famous market fight. And I do love, and something I've never noticed is how much the bad guys get in their own way at the beginning of the market fight. They're hitting each the, other more than they're hitting Indy. The, the entire... The entire market sequence, I think, with yakety sacks played over it, mm-hmm. would would really kind of work. Yeah, mm-hmm. a little uh, a little Benny Hill music put over the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly right. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, just the the shell game with Marion in the basket. Um, there's just. Yeah, it's just so good. And of course, in the middle of it, you get the one of the most iconic moments in this movie slash in cinema where um, the guy pulls out the sword, does all the tricks. Harrison Ford pulls out the pistol and shoots him and then turns around. Uh, just a couple of fun side notes about that. Um, do you know the backstory of that scene? I, I looked it up before yes. we talked. Here. I'll let yep. you I'll let you tell it because I'm talking too much. OK, well, so my understanding from the internet, which yes. we know is true. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Is that um, well, you know, so when they sh- when you see that scene, in the background behind Harrison Ford is a butcher stall. Yeah. And my understanding is that this was supposed to be this kind of involved fight sequence in which the dude with the sword ends up swinging at Harrison Ford and missing and chopping through the piece of meat that the butcher is chopping instead. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, but that, you know, the filming was horrible. It was incredibly hot. They kept doing it and doing it. It was the end of a long day. And so Harrison Ford just completely ad-libbed the pulling out the gun and shooting the guy. Mm-hmm. And they kept it. Yes. Um, so Harrison Ford, um, the, a lot of the cast and crew, in fact, almost the entire cast and crew for this movie um, during the, the parts that were, because this was filmed in Tunisia, um, were horribly ill and Harrison Ford said, uh, you know, got onto set and, um, you know, had very loose bowels and was very, and was struggling hard and apparently said to Steven Spielberg and they were supposed to film that scene for three days. Um, and said, look, you have me for about 15 minutes. Um, hmm. I, I, I like, I'm constantly in the bathroom. I, I can't be out here for long. It's too hot. I'm dehydrated. Like it's really bad. I shouldn't be here, but I'm here now. What do you, you know, you're all set up. What if instead of with that big scene, I just shoot the guy. And then he went, yep, cool, done, sold. And um, they filmed that instead, exactly like you said. Um, But, you know, Harrison Ford uh, tells a story to this day that apparently he feels, well, he feels really bad about that actor because that actor spent um, literally three months um, mastering like all the skill, all the the blade work for that scene, only to have almost none of it used. <laughs> Oops. Um, but Steven Spielberg, apparently, his response to that has always been, "Well, forget that. You know, that guy has one of the most memorable scenes in the movie. You know, right? Yeah. So he, you know, in, in the other fight scenes, you don't remember any of the other guys. 
you do remember this guy. Uh, so yeah, it's true. And I do love that. I think I actually, I think I actually had that guy as an action figure too. Yeah. Right. That was an, uh, my friend Jason had that action figure. Uh, and I was always like, they made an action figure for that guy. That's awesome. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that is. Yeah. He had some cool Indiana Jones action figures that I never got. Um, but man, there were some cool toys for this movie. So good. Um, but I do love if you watch that scene carefully in slow motion or, you know, just carefully after the guy's shot, like his blade sort of pops up in the air and the guy next to him grabs it and like looks around and is like, yeah, look what I got. Woo. Um, which is just a hilarious, you know, response to, you know, the guy next to you being shot and his sword flying up in the air. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, of course. We get Marion, uh, her basket ending up in the back of a truck full of explosives. And like any good bit of, um, oh, uh, tele- what is it? Telegraphing in, in advance, you know, immediately when you saw that truck full of explosives that it was going to explode. Um, and of course it did. Uh, now, I love that they kept Marion dead for longer than you would expect. Um, Right. Like in oftentimes, you know, main character dies, you know, the very next scene or the scene after that, they come back. I'm thinking of uh, the most recent Star Wars movie, a character almost dies and then comes back and that as well. Spoilers. Um, But she stays dead for a significant amount of time. A minute. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And as a kid, I actually was like, oh, my God, they killed the like. This is terrible. And so that scene where Indy's drinking and being sad in the bar is so, you know, hit me like a truck. Um, I just thought, you know, that was so well done. It's almost as though if this was done as serials, it's like she was actually out of an entire episode. And then she was in the one after that. Um, But yeah, so good. Um, Of course, then we get to the famous bar scene where Indy's um, drinking away his tears uh, and we get um, Balak and his room full of... Uh, um, Ne'er-do-wells. He, yes. Uh, armed thugs. Uh, right. And, yeah. But I do love in that scene, I think that is so well acted. Um, Harrison Ford doesn't even look at Balak. And I think the Balak actor is doing a really great job, especially since apparently he'd never smoked a hookah before and he was turning green and like he literally, between <laughs> takes, was dry heaving. Um, but yeah, Harrison Ford doesn't even look at him and his delivery. Oof. When people say that Harrison Ford can't act and I've heard a few people in researching this say that he can't, um, I'd like to say he definitely can. And that scene I think is a good one for that. Um, anything, I mean, again, we're getting back into the shadowy archeology span conversation. And if you bury a, a watch in the ground for 10,000 years, it is now priceless. Um, anything from an archaeological lens or from a, uh, other lens that you'd like to add to that? No, man. I think, I think that that entire scene, right? Like his misery over her apparent death is really important in, you know, creating that relationship between the two of them yeah. and show, you know, showing that he does have a heart of gold, right. Mm-hmm. That he's, he, he may be a, a rogue, but he's got this heart of gold. Yes. And then his rescue by the band of children at the end of it is, is, is just 
is the capstone, right? It's just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the fact that he has to be drug out of there, you know, like his drunk, miserable self has to be drug out of his imminent demise by a bunch of children mm-hmm. is, is great, right? Yeah. Like that is not what you expect from the hero. No, you're not going to see James Bond having to have that happen. Right? Exactly. Right. But, but, but Indy does. And it, it's, it, it really humanizes him. I think it's, 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 it's a great sequence. I agree. I agree. But as the occupational health and safety officer of my school for many years, the second children's shields start being thrown out, I start oh, getting a twitch in my right eye. <laughs> like, Oh God, why are there children in there? There's a right. lot of guns and alcohol. That's terrible. <laughs> Um, but no, I could not agree more. Um, that is, again, yeah, as you say, it really does make Indy different from a lot of other characters of his, of his ilk, um, so to speak. Of course, then we get to one of my, one of my favorite scenes. Um, the one which I was fascinated by as a kid, um, the wizened old man. Um, and often when you see characters in movies, Um, you know, the wizened old character, the master, whatever, you know, name you want to put on that character trope. Um, You often get the deep voice or the, but this character as a kid, I found fascinating. It wasn't until a couple years ago when I was watching this that I realized why. And it's, and it's the same sort of thing as the old man in um, Temple of Doom. He's got a high pitched voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just it marks him as in my mind as something special um, it's he's different and it's a neat character um, and of course you have the famous um, dates scene bad dates where the dates bad are dates yeah, where the, the the dates are poisoned um, by eye patch and you see the indie pick up the poison date and you know my eyes don't go anywhere in that scene other than that date. And I follow it everywhere it goes. And, you know, it's just one of those things where you're holding your breath, watching Indy almost put it in his mouth, take it out, almost put it in his mouth, um, and then it throws it up in the air. And, of course, John Reese davies catches it and delivers that line. But that is a beautiful bit of cinematography. Um, and, of course, the old man delivering um, the lines about, uh, the the height of the staff, and they realize that, of course, the Nazis are have the wrong They're height staff. Right? Digging in the wrong place. Um, now, as an archaeologist, um, do you know how long a cubit is? Uh, no. Neither, <laughs> neither do I. Um, <laughs> and is that? I mean, yeah, I I, I can't imagine that the the. Uh, that any actual finding a tomb mechanism would ever be like this in real life. Um, But how, I mean, besides working off of legends and talking to the locals and I guess using LIDAR, these guys are just hacking through the bush. Is is that commonly how you find these places in real life? Well, I mean, the, the sequence that we're getting ready to get to here where he goes to Egypt and again, that huge excavation scene is in fact pretty true to the archeology span of the day. Mm-hmm. You know, you have these, you have these sites, um, you know, like, like Uruk in Iraq where, you know, university of Pennsylvania museum goes out there and hires, you know, hundreds of locals to just go out and like dig tombs mm-hmm. and you're actually like paying them based on the goodies that they bring back. 
Um, and so you, you just have this massive ground clearing operation where people are just digging holes just all over the landscape mm-hmm. and, and eventually you're going to hit something, right? Right. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're skipping ahead a little bit here, but you, the, you know, the whole sequence, right? The whole, uh, staff with the, the, the jewel on top of it and the sun comes through and it hits the jewel and, you know, I, I understand it's a it's it's a plot device, but then there's this part of me that's like, but it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, like. There yeah. are there are astrological or, you know, uh, astronomical phenomenon linked to archaeological sites. But, you know, think think of Stonehenge, right? Think of the, the main pyramid at Chichen Itza, but like something like that. You know, I guess it's one of those things where, like, I don't enjoy that anymore because I know too much. Mm-hmm. And so there's this part of me that's like, but tomorrow the sun wouldn't rise in that same spot and so wouldn't hit the staff the same way. Right. And so where it points to tomorrow would not be the spot that it points to today. Mm-hmm. But you just picked a random day. Screw you. You're all digging in the wrong place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um. I... I may have thought of that at one point or another. Um, we have the Shrine of Remembrance in Melbourne, um, which is a war memorial. And on um, Veterans Day, at, a, at 11 o'clock, at 11th minute, the light shines through a hole in the roof, and there's a plaque on the floor with with um, you know a, a motto on it, and the word love is illuminated on 11-11 at 11-11. Beautiful. But even then, they... When they built it, they didn't realize that the Earth actually doesn't rotate perfectly, and so it doesn't do that at that time anymore. Um, and mm. that was with the right time, with the right minute, and the right day. So, you know, I watched this scene this time and was like, oh, man, it's just a hole in the roof. Anyway, um, but you have never had a laser beam cut across a, mod- a scale model of the excavation site that you're working on to... Uh, <laughs> point the way only only ones that i was shooting <laughs> right on <sighs> i do love that um and, and something i never noticed and it's funny because in that picture book there were pictures of that scene uh it seemed to be an entire spread on that and i seem to remember like burned in my memory the pictures from that map room scene over and over and over again. And I never saw it until I watched the movie this time that written on the big building in the middle of yeah. that model yeah, yeah. is German saying um, something like do not enter or oh, like stay out or whatever. It, it written. And I'm like, what? Why is that there? Um, have you ever noticed that before? Yeah, I, I noticed that on my rewatch here recently. And yeah. I don't know exactly. I feel like that was maybe something that got edited out or something. You know, there's 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 some sort of exposition there that we're not we're not privy to. I right. don't know why that's there. Right. Now, we did jump ahead a little bit, but I don't think we missed a lot. I think actually you did a good job of summarizing and moving the plot forward. Um, can I just take a two second notice as a note as, um, as someone who does do a little world war II uh, tabletop gaming, the uniforms that the Germans are wearing in this movie. And I can't believe I'm button counting kids, but I am here you go. Get ready. Those are, um, Deutsche Afrika Corps or DAC uniforms. Um, but those don't actually come into being until the 1940s. Um, those dudes should have been wearing different uniforms if this was 1936, but yes. 
Yep. Worst cosplay ever. Ever. Uh, if anything, they should have had pith helmets, which would have looked awesome, but wouldn't have been not uh, immediately uh, recognizable as Nazis. So, yes. Um, I do, uh, yeah. So, Sorry, go ahead. So, I, I, just, I got a thing here about this, about this whole sequence at Tannis, mm-hmm. right? Like, why is the door to every building on its roof? Right? I guess because they haven't excavated the the main doorways yet, maybe. But but I I mean I guess. But you know it's 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 awfully nice of them to leave you know mm-hmm. sundials and trap doors and all that stuff on the roof of every building. I, I don't know, right? Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. Hey man, they liked sunroofs back then. They did. Yeah. yeah. It was hot. They needed to cool off. They had to get some ventilation going. Um. Yeah, no, right? Um, and then as they're, um, so as Indy's in the map room, I never understood why the German soldiers came over to steal the rope. And I, I was like, you know, why? Like, how did John Reese davies get pulled away? I thought they were pulling him away to do a job. And he took the rope. And I was, as a kid, I was like, why did he take the rope? I just never, and it, it stuck with me until I watched it this time. And it made sense that they're p- calling him over and there's a half track and a car that's stuck. And that, uh. and they're stealing the rope to pull the car. And it wasn't until I watched that that it made sense. And I went, oh my God, that's really clever. Um, apparently, though, in the filming of that scene, um, John Reese Davies was very, very ill, like everyone else. Um, and um, they had him squat down and uh, and in front of a cast of, uh, you know, entire crew of 100 plus people. Yep. Fully soiled himself. Oh, no. Yeah. And apparently it was like, don't even care. I'm too sick. Don't care. I'm leaving now. Bye. Um, yeah, man. Apparently the only person who didn't get sick on the uh, during the Tunisian scenes was Steven Spielberg who brought uh, suitcases and suitcases of canned food. Um, (laughs) Supposedly, uh, most of those were SpaghettiOs. So he apparently lived on SpaghettiOs for a long time. Now, I don't know about you. I've never lived off of SpaghettiOs, but I did once spend uh, six weeks in China in the 80s and brushed my teeth uh, and only drank orange soda for six weeks. Um, yeah. Have you ever, having uh, been a man of the world and been through places where, uh, you know, out in the bush, so to speak, or out in the jungles, have you been in a place where you've done similar things? Oh, man, you know, jungles, cities, you name it. Mm-hmm. There's uh, a lot of the world where you uh, have to be careful what you eat and drink. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've never gotten, I've been fortunate I've never gotten retchingly ill, but uh, I've known people that have. I have only been sick once, and that was on that same China trip on the way out, and I'm pretty sure it was the airline uh, little cup of ice cream that they gave you after the meal, because I didn't eat the meal, but I had the ice cream, and then, oh boy, was I sick. Uh, Yeah, China Airlines in the 80s, not amazing. China Airlines (laughs) now, very different animal, just saying. Um, All right, well... We get the flag escape, and then, of course, um, Indy ends up um, ducking some soldiers and ends up in the tent and sees Marion. And, of course, then we get Marion back. and They get their first kiss. Yes. 
and then he leaves her. Right? Wah, wah. Okay. Now, she comes across as a strong, you know, strong-willed, independent, capable woman. Um, now, I'm married to one of those, and you were married to one of those. Can you imagine your lovely wife? If you did that to her, I mean, the plan makes sense with the way saying like, they'll come looking for us if I take you now. But my God, again, what a hero. You would never see um, a hero doing that. In fact, George Carlin in the 90s did a thing did a, you know, things you never see and you never see an action hero say, do what you want to her. Just leave me alone. Um, but it's it's that kind of thing, right? Yeah. 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 That's uh it's a bold move. Yeah. But it you know, it also sort of furthers their relationship, right? You go in that like in that period of seconds from this, you know, passionate reunion to this like yeah. you know, and then there's the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's he's probably making the right call, but you know, it's he'll he'll have explaining to do, sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. just a little bit. Mm. Um yeah. Well, of course, then he ties her back up and goes. And it is funny, though, when um, Balik, 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 Bollocks, Bollocks. Yeah, exactly. Shows up later. Um, You can see she's initially like furious when he shows up. And the the second she sees who it is, she's like, oh, it's just you Um, thinking (laughs) it's Indy coming back. Right. Um, But yeah. So we Indy finds. No, no, no. It's it's a creepy Frenchman (laughs) bearing high heels who hangs out with Nazis. We'll get to that scene because because when I because when you know when I pack for Egypt, I'm like, yeah, I should pack high heels and a nightgown because you never know. Yeah. Okay, mate. How many times in this movie is is Marion given a white dress by some random man? Who shouldn't, yeah. by any now, point, you know, have have that in her side? Maybe this is maybe this is the shadowy reflection thing again, right? Like Indiana <laughs> yes. Jones doesn't pack spare underwear. This is Bo- true. Bollock packs a woman's outfit. Yeah. <sighs> exactly right. Um, <laughs> yeah, and we will. Yeah, we'll get to that scene. Oh, maybe we'll just talk about it now. Um, that scene is awesome. I do love how she does the. Um, you know, clearly she's, you can see her scheming, uh, and she's like, I bet you'd like to see me in that. Oh, fuck, this actually will help me get out of here. Okay, let me put it on. And, of course, he's right. being creepy and looking at her reflection um, <clears throat> as she's changing. Um, but then they have the drinking competition, and it's, um, you know, she's pretending to be drunk to get it over on him, but he's pretending to be drunk at the same time. And, you know, I never got that he wasn't as drunk as well, until this watching when I was watching, I was like, Oh my God, he's doing the same thing back to her. Um, they're both pretending or that, or it's the magical Indiana Jones drunk where they're drunk one second and sober the next. Um, cause I don't know about you, but if I was drinking about losing Marion and then went to go see the old man with the, in the bad date scene, man, I'd be howling walking around that dude's shop, knocking into things, causing trouble. I'm just saying. You and I have both been in that situation, maybe in a voodoo shop in New Orleans once or twice. I don't know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. No idea. No idea. Um, all right. Well, um, but yeah. I think it was a bar on Magazine Street. But yeah, sure. <laughs> once or twice. Uh, balcony bar? Balcony? Bar? Yeah, it could be. Uh, could yeah. be. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, yeah. But I love. Is that Okay. Sorry, I go just... ahead. 
as an aside, mm-hmm. as an archaeological moment in our past, yes, there was a night at the balcony bar, yes, where you got engaged in a shouting match with a nearby table. I never do that about about what were the correct seven wonders of the ancient world. Yes. Yep, that is true. Yep. Okay. And I may have gotten like four or five of those right and then turned to you and said, come on, you're the archaeology major. Help me out here. It's pretty esoteric stuff. All right, all right. Sorry, just moving on. Okay. New Orleans in the 90s. What can you say? Um, yeah. I was wondering where you're going with that. I was like, are we going to talk about the bartender who was an injury? No, where no, we're not going to take that any further. Okay, okay. Go on, stop in there. Okay. Um, but yeah, of course, um, Marion tries to escape and then runs headlong into Tolt, um, who comes out and you know the Germans are being creepy. And of course, Tolt, the creepy uh, Gestapo guy, pulls out his implementation, his implement to hang his jacket. Um, that thing, as a kid, I was like, oh my God, what is he going to do? What is that terrible? And I'm sure everyone in the audience was thinking the same thing. And of course, it's this coat hanger. Um, I didn't realize that was a reused joke. Um, apparently, that was in Spielberg's previous movie, 1941. Um, hmm. And he was. He said, you know, he wanted he was shocked it didn't get a better laugh. And since that movie had sort of been panned by critics, he thought, oh, what the hell? I'll put it in this one as well and see if it gets a, a good laugh. And it does. So FYI. Um, but yeah, while all this is happening, Indy, of course, finds the Well of Souls. Um, and then he's overseeing uh, a crew of people actually digging the hole. Now, when I was watching the LiDAR document- <laughs> documentary, I couldn't help but notice the guy wearing the hat with our university logo on it, um, standing in the back with his hands on his hips, you know, kind of in pointing and, you know, giving directions while everyone else worked. Um, is that how that works? Or do you, do you sort of get sort of in deep? Because, I mean, during scenes of the movie, like in the, in the map room, we see Indy on his hands and knees with the brush, brushing things off, doing actual archaeological things reading pulling out notebooks comparing hieroglyphs doing all of that and then we see him overseeing the locals um what do you think is that problematic or is that sad no no that's that's totally reasonable right so um you know again this i have not worked in egypt but um you know working in central america one of the parts of archaeological projects is that they provide um, economic gain for the people who live in the area. Yeah. Right. So the project comes in, you hire people, whether it's as guides or as cooks or as camp guards or mm-hmm. as field workers. And that's usually something that's negotiated. You know, you go to the, the mayor of the local town and you say, you know, we need X number of guys. And he says, okay, well, you're going to hire Y number of guys. And you say, okay, well, we'll hire Y number of guys then. And right. so, you know, you're, you're, you're training, you're, you're there doing research, but you're also training people. You're giving them skills so that they have, they can work with other projects in the future. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're also then, and paying them in some cases far more of a, of a, of a wage than they'd be able to earn otherwise. Right. Um, and so the trade off to that then is there's a, you, there's a lot of supervising that you do. Um, you know, because it's understood you're, you're paying for work. They're going to work for you. You know, mm-hmm. no one likes to be, well, 
most people, many people don't like to be paid and then to just sit there. Right. Right. Um, now, you know, the, the reality of this, of course, is in, in, um, you know, American archaeology as well is that there's that hierarchy, right? There's a person with an MA or a PhD, the person with the most experience who's in charge of the thing. Mm-hmm. And then there's, you know, people who are just out of college or, you know, mm-hmm. summer interns or whatever who are doing most of the grunt work. And, you know, that is that is a dichotomy. And, I, you know, I imagine that's that's probably in a lot of fields, right? Whether it's mm-hmm. in, um, you know, physics labs or. Um, you know, what have you, you know, the higher you climb up the food chain, the less of the drudge work you have to do. Yes. And, you know, on one hand, excavation is why we all get into it. On the other hand, man, it takes a little bit out of you to, you know, move six cubic meters of dirt. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. So like if, if someone else can come in and move that and get you to the cool stuff, well, that's, that's okay. That's all right. Yeah, exactly. Not to mention, I'm sure that the uh, the local, at least in uh, some of the situations where you're talking about, where they're you're being guaranteed work, but it's also we're going to do this work. You're not going to do this work. Um, kind of like why you can't pump gas in Jersey. Hundred percent. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, sorry, I didn't mean to. <laughs> in the way I phrased that question, I was like, I hope I didn't just make it sound like that you're an imperialist dog who's whipping people to move dirt. No, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it's leaning on a shovel and watching other people work is always good. You know, it's a good thing if you can get it, right? Yeah, exactly, right? All right. Well, speaking of which, um, I do love how they, as you say, open the uh, the sunroof in the Well of Souls. <laughs> they're able to get in, right? Um, and it takes an entire— There's Just that one little thin sheet of stone up there on the freaking roof. Right? Yeah. Um, and how yep. many people it takes to move it. Right. It takes a ton of people with crowbars, uh, pry bars to pry it and to move it over an entire crew of people. Um, now, I, I, I point that out because in about 30 seconds, I'm going to point out something else. So, um, of course, then we get the all of this while all of this is happening. We get maybe the one scene of special effects that don't hold up in the movie. And that's the storm in the sky above them. Um, high green screen. But it, um, you know, it, in a movie that is so practically done, I was shocked at how well it, it stood up. And that one scene was so jarring where I was like, oh, yeah, the sky. Oh, that's bad. Um, but going off of that, though, of course, then they get into the Well of Souls and we see all the snakes. And that is so incredibly well done. That whole scene is um, I, I just was blown away. Of course, you know, you're going to have to look at that not realistically because what are those snakes eating over all the time but that aside it is such a beautiful scene it is such a beautiful set and all of the snakes um it, it it's just and as a kid terrifying um yeah my ahead. one gripe about that entire scene is the end mm-hmm. where he manages to just by sheer force of like quads and ill will yes bring down the column that supports the entire roof mm-hmm. just by himself yeah that statue of anubis don't even worry about it it was shoddily made yeah, it's you know i yeah. mean it, yeah it stood for a couple thousand years but really like yeah you exactly. know it's no match for indiana jones mm-hmm. well i'm i'm glad you brought that up because when i brought up all of those people removing that the skylight uh to that room uh, did you notice uh, when Sala and Indy 
opened, and I, I want, I'm going to use the word sarcophagus because I know a body isn't in there, but it's the only analog vocabulary word I can use, the box <laughs> that the Ark is in. Um, the two of them put some rods in, pick up, and or uh, I don't even know if they put the rods in. They don't. They just push the um, the giant stone cover of that box, which I might add has two of the sides attached to it. Lift it, push it off, throw it to the side. Strength of 10 because their hearts are pure. (laughs) Wow. And then Indy knocks over the Anubis statue. Wow. Uh, Yeah. And then later when they're exiting the Well of Souls, uh, Indy pushes out an entire block, um, you know, that holds up the pyramids out of the side of the building. Yeah. Problematic. (laughs) And, And again, right, like there's a wall there. Yes, that overlooks the freaking airfield. Mm-hmm. But but no one thought to go Check. through the wall. They were looking for the roof instead. That's yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, in through the roof. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I so blown that blown away by that. Um, I do love that though. That um, in that scene, uh, Bollock of course figures out where. Um, India's um, looks over. Are we, are we just calling him Bollocks now? And yeah, Bollock. Ba- 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 okay. Bollock. I I don't know. Okay, I'm, I'm getting it wrong. He's French. I'm not part <laughs> French at all. All the people who know that I am, stop say yelling at the phone. Anyway, um, yeah. I mean, I love that he sees that and that whole interchange. I, I also love that he's like really bummed out that when they throw Marion down the hole. Uh, Mm-hmm. And yeah, and that whole interaction between Indy and Marion in the Well of Souls, I think is pretty damn special. Um, again, it, it's just more of their relationship, really well written. Um, and then, of course, Indy knocks the statue through the wall, and we get um, the room of what do we want to call them? Um, withered corpses, zombies, Dead skeletons. Folks. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I know they're not alive. I know they're not making sound, but because they added the sound and they had all the close-ups of the cameras, that was one of the most terrifying scenes in the movie for me. I yeah. was blown. I mean, of course I was 6, but unbelievable like I was like, "Ah, oh, what is this? Oh, it was terrifying." Um yeah. But as an adult, I watched that and go, "Where's that noise coming from?" <laughs> right? Of course it's probably just in Marion's head, but Fantastic scene. Um, anything else you want to bring up with Well of Souls before we start blowing up fuel trucks? No, dude. Let's get to the uh, the fuel yes. trucks and the uh, giant bald dude. Yes. Well, we get to the – and it's been referred to as the Arrow Wing, I believe. Um, or it's it, So it's based on a model of a uh, prototype of a plane that was never built. Um, and it was never been – I don't believe they ever made that type of plane ever fly properly. Um, so it is kind of fun that that plane exists. And, um, when, so there were people in, I believe in the eighties kids that made a shot for shot remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they did the entire movie, but this scene, um, because they, as a kids, they couldn't pull it. And then as adults, they got funding and they made a documentary about the making of that scene and about the doc and about the movie as a whole, but they recreated that plane. They built it and blew it up. Amazing. Um, but yeah, they were trying to find, you know, find out as much about this imaginary plane as they could that only ever existed 
on screen in this movie to recreate it. And I just thought that was fascinating as someone who, you know, is constantly building little models of imaginary vehicles. I thought that was cool. Um, it was. Yeah. It, it, also, it also has no cargo space that could have accommodated the Ark. Right? Thank you. I was looking at that going, so where are they going? Uh, underneath, maybe? <laughs> We're just going to duct tape it to the belly and hope for the best. Yes. Well, speaking of hoping for the best, my God, you want to talk dirty fighting. I think this is the scene you were talking about. Indy kicks people in the balls, throws sand. I mean, it's dirty fighting the whole way through. Um, and, and and he's going to lose, right? Like, yeah, I mean, badly. Like he, he was going to lose except for the propellers. Mm-hmm. And, and Marion. Um, Marion. Yes. And I did love that thing where Mar- <clears throat> this is another scene where Marion is not just a damsel in a dress. She gets knocked and locked in the plane, which is a little damsel in a dressy, but then turns it around, grabs the, um, the AA guns, and just mows down a truck full of dudes. Yeah, so tell me something. Did I miss this this last time I watched it? But how does she get from the cockpit to the rear gunner turret? Apparently she crawls through the inside. Okay. I guess. All right. Yeah. Um, but then she ends up back in the cockpit to be broken out. So. Okay. Yeah. Hashtag she knows the inside of that airplane. Maybe she knows right. where the arc's going to fit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but man, yeah, especially like at the end when the the bald guy gets minced by the propeller. Ouch. Blood, you know, spraying everywhere. Um, grim. And I think um, one of the other guys, blood spatters. Oh, I'm thinking of the truck fight in a minute. But wow, uh, what a scene. It's fantastic. Um, so iconic, but also so improbable. Um, but yeah, great. Um, anything you want to add to that? No, no. And then they steal trucks. Right. right? But, this, hold on. Before they steal right trucks, have you ever um, have you ever had to break into an airplane to steal back archaeological artifacts that you had stolen from you? Again, or is this CIA territory? Are we not talking about this? Rarely. Rare. Okay. It's happened, though. Okay. I heard that. I heard that. Um, now, a fr- uh, funny story. Um, a friend of ours in college, um, who shall remain nameless, had a father who worked for an organization that has three letters and who may have been mentioned earlier in this episode, who shall also remain nameless. Um, and I was once out for dinner with him um, in uh, the French Quarter, and um, after uh, a tasty beverage or two, he was regaling stories of um, trying to find uh, drugs on an airplane, uh, and they pulled out all the contents of the airplane. They went through it top to bottom, uh, and they couldn't find it uh, until they started pulling the plane apart itself, and they found the fuselage was completely filled with drugs. Um, now, how that plane took off, who knows? Anyway. Fun story, a little uh, a little anecdote, um, ties New Orleans and airplanes. I don't know why I went there. I just thought of it. Anyway, truck. So, and of course the line, what truck? And then, of course, Indy gets on his white horse, as the hero does, and chases after it. Again, talk about brutal fight scenes. My God. And this whole sequence, right? Like, we go from, right, I mean, what a sequence, right? Starting right? with the Well of Souls. To mm-hmm. the fight on the airfield, to riding the freaking horse, to hijacking the truck. Mm-hmm. It's just like it's bang, 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 bang. It's, it's, it's pretty fantastic. 
It is. And he gets shot in the sequence. And it's not every day, you know, when a bad guy gets shot, you know, blood cloud all the time. But how many times in a in an action movie do you see your main character get shot and then blood spatter on the windscreen? Not every day. Yeah. That that that's intense. Now I think after this or while we're talking about this scene, since a lot of the injuries happen in this scene. Um, shall we talk about the injuries that Indiana Jones suffers during Raiders of the Lost Ark? Um, he is dragged by a truck. He is hit with a mirror. He is thrown through a window. He takes nine punches to the face. Multiple head injuries. He's choked. Um, don't even get into the binge drinking. Uh, takes a punch to the liver. Um, we see that in the airplane scene. Uh, gets a gunshot to his arm. Then he gets three punches to the gunshot and a kick to the gunshot wound. Um, and of course, all of those last ones happened in this scene. Brutal. I mean, when the guy's wailing on his wound, ouch. Again, showing children this movie, <laughs> ouch. Um, but yeah, I mean, th the way that this is done as far as guys climbing over the sides, guys climbing um, over the top, um, the fighting that happens, Indy going over the truck, and then the German soldier doing the same thing after him. Um, you know, the, the ramming into the car. So, so iconic, so riveting. Uh, such a well-done scene, right? And he wins. He does. And uh, apparently they can't, uh, they can't catch up with him by the time he gets into Omar's garage. Uh, as an adult, I was thinking... <laughs> How the hell were they waiting for him? But then I remember when he gets on the horse, he actually says, I'll meet you at Omar. So I guess they're waiting. Um, but yeah, right? It, uh, again, how many times have we seen that in movies? Uh, and I'm not sure if that was the first time we saw it, but it's definitely one of the things that get... This movie is one of the, the core places that people reference when you see that in television shows and movies today. Um, yeah, that sequence. Yeah. 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 Um, now, we get the boat. Um, boarding the boat, um, Sala gets his goodbye kiss. One kiss for his wife, one kiss for his children on the cheeks. And uh, I think that is the most intense sidekick kiss uh, outside of Goonies <laughs> I've ever seen. Um, and uh, unsurprisingly, starts singing. And then kisses another guy walking along in his joy. Uh, yeah, right? Yep. Pass it on. Mm -hmm. That's right. And we get on to uh, Katanga's ship. Uh, now, we set sail. Uh, of course, there's the famous him getting hit with the mirror. I thought that was very, very cleverly done. I laugh every time that happens. Um, and then there's one of uh, Steven Spielberg's favorite moments in the movie, which is the where doesn't it hurt uh, kissing scene. Um, and then Indy passes out. Now, I was watching this last night. My wife came home during that scene. And she went off on a 10-minute diatribe about how sexist and awful that scene is um, and how if I ever tried to do something like that, she'd take me out back and shoot me, something like that. Um, so maybe it isn't as sweet, as wonderful as I thought, but hmm. maybe. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? It cements their relationship. It does. It does. Um, well, let's talk about uh, the Nazi symbol on the box in the hall. Um, starts to burn off. And the rat standing next to it starts to wheel in a circle. You know what I'm talking about? I do. Mm. Did you know why? So that rat 
wheeling in a circle was not uh, intentionally done. It wasn't like training the monkey to seg heel, which they did earlier in the movie. Um, by having a grape on a stick, uh, and that took 50 takes, by the way. <laughs> I read that. 50 takes. Um, so they did the rat take, I think, twice. Uh, and after the first time, they said, why is he going in a circle? And the animal trainer said, um, so that rat is deaf, and it's throwing off his um, you know, sense of balance. And so he was just walking in a circle. And so they liked it so much, they filmed it a second time. And that is what you see in the movie. FYI. Um, they had a rat trainer on set. Yeah. Well, an animal trainer. But yeah, it, part of that apparently is a rat trainer. Um, of course, we see Indy then um, strapping his gun on. And, um, you know, Karen Anderson says, why? And he says, the engines have stopped. And, of course, we get the U-boat pulling alongside. <clears throat> Indy hides. Uh, and... Um, Marion and the Ark are taken, and um, everyone's looking for Indy. Yes. Even as a kid, mm-hmm. it always bothered me that he was apparently just clinging to the outside of the submarine. Okay, I'm going to get to that in a second. <laughs> um, quickly before that, um, have you ever seen the Val Kilmer Zucker Brothers movie Top Secret? Their spoof oh, yeah. World War II oh, yeah. movie. Heck yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. one of the resistance fighters, probably the most memorable of them, is a very large African-American gentleman named, or in this case, African-French gentleman, named Chocolate Mousse. <laughs> Chocolate Mousse is the same actor who is the second mate on Katanga's ship and points to the submarine and says, there he is. Um, same actor. In fact, he's wearing almost the same outfit. Um, a slight difference, but it, to the point where I went, oh my God, that's Chocolate Moose, because I've seen Top Secret more recently than this movie. Anyway, fun <laughs> fact. Um, yeah, of course. Indy's on the U-boat, and the U-boat starts going. Now, as a kid, as you say, I find it ve- found it very problematic that he's holding on to the side of a submarine <laughs> when it's traveling long distances, right? Um but as a World War II nerd, uh, later in life, I've discovered that U-boats often didn't go under um, if they could help it. Uh, and they often traveled above the water because of diesel engines and fumes and air and all of this. And so they would often um, travel with um, their capula or whatever you want to... Uh, why can't I think of the name? The mast? No. Um, you know, the Paris tower. Street. The tower. Partially the tower. out of the water. Um, now, there is a cut scene from this movie where Indy lashes himself to, uh, to the, that tower or the, the mast above it with his whip, um, but it wasn't actually put in the movie. Um, and if you actually notice him in the water, once he's actually climbing onto the sub, he actually doesn't have his whip. He doesn't have his whip. Mm. He doesn't have his jacket. He's lost his hat. He doesn't have anything. He's just, you know, in his clothes. Um, he apparently doesn't even have his gun. So same pair of underwear. Yeah, <laughs> or if he's wearing any, I'm just saying. Um, so we get to the um, we get to the Greek island, um, and everyone, you know, the the Germans get out in their secret submarine pen. Uh, and Indy, of course, I thought it was always 
as a kid, I thought it was fantastic that um, the first guy he grabs was the wrong size. And then, of course, uh, when I watched Die Hard years later, it was the very first thing I thought of was this movie when I went, oh, God, yeah, again, the guy has is too small to, you know, his shoes are too small to fit. Um, this guy's uniform's too small to fit. And, of course, then Indy <laughs> roughs up the, the sergeant who catches him um, and takes his uniform, which does fit. Um, and then we get the march to the ceremony site, right before which the German officer or the Nazi officer says, you know, I'm uncomfortable taking part in this Jewish ceremony. Do you know why that line was put in? Um, fascinating. I didn't know this. Um, up until that point, uh, interestingly enough that, you know, they're searching after the Ark of the Covenant. No one says the word Jewish or Jew or any relation to, you know, Judaism until that line. And they realized as they were filming it and got to that part, they went, maybe we should mention being this is the Jewish artifact and the Jewish God. We should probably mention that. Uh, and that, acknowledge that at yeah, some point. At some yeah, point we should, yeah, sure. At least have a throwaway line, uh, at which point they did. And that's why that's there. Because, um, yeah. Uh, or a fact that, um, you know, a Nazi might be uncomfortable around a Jewish artifact. Just hashtag, there may be a, a reason for that. But yeah, um, so that was interesting. Um, but then we get the march to the site. Um, I don't know about you, but um, when I have been on archaeological digs and we get our artifact and we're marching it to the, you know, the site of the ceremony, the occult ceremony that we're going to be a part of, um, I like to bring a phalanx of soldiers myself. Um, how about you? It never hurts. Never no. hurts. I also find that um, the more garish my turban, the better the results of the ceremony. Yes. Yes. Um, now, uh, I have learned this at Bible study at one point in my life. Um, detailed in the Bible, if you pull out your Bible, if it's sitting right next to you, uh, wherever you are right now, if you happen to be in a hotel room, you can pull out the old Gideons and you turn Brad, to I'm, Brad. Yeah. I, I don't have one. I'm just saying you could and next oh. time you're in a hotel, you can find one. Um, okay. and you'll have to Google search what verse and chapter, but the exact specifications for the Ark of the Covenant, the temple, and those robes are in the Bible. Exact measurements to the T. So when they built the Ark, they used the actual measurements out of the Bible. And when they made his robes, apparently they followed him as well. Hashtag true story. Um, so, yeah. So if you want to make fun of his outfit, it's biblical, man. Um, it's biblical. It's biblical. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, now, Indy then pulls out the rocket launcher, um, which he steals from the ammo dump that he walks through on the way by. Um, if, if only he didn't love her so much, he could have solved everything right there. Yes. Now, on one hand, yes. Now, as a World War II aficionado, on the other hand, um, in 1936... Most that's an anti-tank weapon. Uh, most tanks were being taken out by, um, like, they're called anti-tank rifles, and they were, you know, glorified elephant guns. They were like giant sniper rifles. Um, let, they didn't have rockets yet. That came later. Um, and the mm. fact that what he's holding looks like a Russian RPG from the fifties, but it does eh, actually. Yeah. yeah, it does. Anyway, uh, I think he stole that from the uh, first blood set. 
next door. Anyway, um, moving on. Um, so then they're tied to the post, and of course we get the famous scene where the ceremony takes place. Uh, and of course the sky goes dark again, and they open the Ark of the Covenant. Um, dum dum dum. Yes, and there's nothing but dust. And uh, one Nazi runs his hand through it. Uh, and, um, of course, our favorite uh, creepy Gestapo guy, and by favorite, I'm putting giant air quotes on that, the creepy Gestapo guy laughs, um, thinking this is hilarious. But then spooky things happen. All the electricals short out. All the, um, you know, everything sort of goes dark, and then the creepy ghosts come out. Now, one of the big criticisms for this movie is that Indy then turns to Marion and says, close your eyes, don't look. And everyone bitches about the fact that he says that. How would he know that? Um, it was actually cut out of the movie. Um, you know the old gentleman with the high-pitched voice that I said I liked so much earlier in the movie? Oh. He says that. Oh. That A, you should never touch the Ark of the Covenant or its contents. And B, you shouldn't look at it if it's opened. FYI. And for some reason, that was cut out. I don't know if that was a George Lucas cutout or if it was never filmed, but yeah. Well, you know, but even without that, it still kind of it still kind of operates under the like you know, as a kid with monsters in the mm -hmm. bedroom, right? Like as long right. as you have the covers over your head, as long as you can't see them, you'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. And when and when you're tied to a post and surrounded by Nazis, I mean, you have limited options. So, good mm -hmm. guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, true, true. Um, now, when we are talking about this, of course, the, the lasers, so to speak, or the light shoots through... Lasers. Um, lasers shoots through all of the torsos of the, the grunts, and the um, named Nazis melt and then explode, um, and all the creepy ghost people, um, you know, are floating around. And then everyone is sucked up into heaven, I guess, um, or sucked up into the I, sky. Just saying. Yeah, I was going to say. Going the wrong I way. I was going to say Bill Murray puts out the trap and it sucks all the ghosts in. Mm -hmm, that's it. And then. Yeah. And then it all sucks back down into uh, the ark itself. And magically and mystically, uh, Indy's ropes are burnt off, open off. Like they're not tied anymore. I mean, in the grand scope of things that are going on, that's pretty minor. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I was just, and then, of course, I always wondered, how do they get off the island? Um, but this begs a larger question, Aaron, I have to ask. As, as a man who thinks things through, and I know you do, I know um, you, you don't always acknowledge the fact, but you are probably <laughs> one of my most clever friends. Um, can, I, can I point this out? We have our hero. He has accomplished many things in this movie and failed at a great many things in this movie. Um, but in the end, he's tied to a post when God kills all the Nazis. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying. So I guess he was there to, to take the Ark, to return it to the, or to take it to the U.S. government. I guess that's his job next. Um, okay. Okay, I got, okay, I'll go with that. Um, and yes, he gets back to the domestic United States somehow with it. Okay, I'll go with that. Um, I guess my big question is, wouldn't, I mean, rarely have you seen a character do so little, you know, to, 
successfully land the end of the movie than Indy does in this one. I mean, if if he had been any more unsuccessful, it would have gotten to Germany first, and Hitler would have opened it, and that would have ended World War II pretty quick. So, I don't know. You, you, you going where I'm going? You picking up what I'm putting down? Well, it's but it's kind of nice, right? You know, you were talking earlier about how you know Harrison Ford sort of took this character and sort of turned him into this, yeah, you know, bookish non-action hero. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he you know he takes off the hat and he puts on his tweed jacket with elbow patches, and it's kind of a Jekyll and Hyde sort of thing, almost, right? Yes, and you know. I mean, it sort of ends perfectly in that way, right? Like this swashbuckling adventure, you know, that for anybody, for any other character would, you know, they'd have the girl and, it, you know, they'd save the world and this and that. And I guess, yeah, he's kind of done that. But at the end, he's just he's just back where he started and he yes. doesn't even have the arc. Right. And yeah, you, you, I mean, you're right. He sort of he sort of failed his way through this whole thing, mm-hmm. and yet somehow saved the world. So yeah, so call it a win. Yeah, and this feels very much like the last one of these that we did, where we talked about Big Trouble in Little China. It feels ooh, very ooh, similar. Ooh, yeah. Talk about the antihero. Um, well, I guess there's two more scenes. We have um. We we get the return of Jack Porkins talking about uh, saying our best men are on it, and Harrison Ford saying our Ooh. best men, our best men, exactly. Uh, and then Harrison Ford walks out with um, Marion, and they go arm in arm off into the distance to get drunk in a bar, um, as we are led to believe, and that would be the end of the movie. But then we get. Um, possibly one of my well maybe my favorite scene in the movie where the arc is wheeled off by a nondescript gentleman uh and stored in the warehouse of innumerable boxes and while i was on one hand happy that that showed up in the crystal skull i was not uh i i kind of wish that that scene had had been left intact um if you get my meeting like i i kind of wish that warehouse had sort of remained in mystery and not been yeah. shown again. Um, and I think it is important, though, that a uh, friend of the show and uh, former podcast guest many times over, Seamus, every single time I uh, mention that I have a thing in my closet of doom or you know pull out a model that I already own, he sends a picture of that warehouse to me. <laughs> nice. Um, so I, d- I, d- I could not do this movie without you know show- doing that little shout-out for Seamus. Um, now, Ahab. Have you ever stored anything in a warehouse uh, anonymously or had the government take all of your hard-found relics that you looted from the local population to bring back to the United <laughs> States? I have not. But, you know, but but that's – it's – you know, there's a truth there, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, the grand colonial institutions took so much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from from indigenous cultures, from archaeological heritage. I mean, you know, just boat literal boatloads of the stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know, now we think of that as being museum collections, but to begin with, it was just really just booty, right? It was yeah. just treasure. And it takes a big warehouse to house all that stuff. And that's you know, there is there is archaeological research, like vital, important archaeological research happening today that has nothing to do with digging holes, that is literally opening boxes and 
rediscovering what was put in storage a century ago. And part of that is, you know, part of that is we know a lot more now than we did then. And so, you know, looking at looking at things with fresh eyes, new interpretations, but part of it is just finding things again for the first time. And I've heard stories about this, about, you know, museums moving curatorial facilities and people like, you know, finding a shoebox with a skull in it that was put down there one day in January in 1911 and nobody ever touched it since, you know, that's nuts. (laughs) It's it's a thing. Yeah, I was uh, I was recently, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that's the stuff I've been doing with, uh, you know, looking for tattoos on mummies. Mm. And uh, earlier this fall, I was uh, did a research visit to a uh, renowned university in your hometown. Yeah, um, where uh, they had a record that they had some mummies from this particular culture and. And I asked if I could look at them because I was thinking, well, maybe they have tattoos and they they pull out the box. And, you know, honest to God, there's a typewriter written tag in the box that's at least 130 years old that says on it, tattooed mummy arms. You're kidding. And, <laughs> you know, truth in advertising. Guess what was in the box? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah that's crazy. So yeah, there's a little bit of that, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't. I can't imagine anywhere in Boston where all those universities and you know research institutions are that that could have happened at any point, especially the old ones. <laughs> well, and, you know, and that that but that was a thing, particularly in the the late 19th century and and through the 1930s when Indiana Jones is taking place. You know, mm. the emphasis was on acquisition. Right. Not on interpretation or even really on exhibition. You know, museums were museums and institutions were um, both funding work, but also then were the recipients of these people that you know these the their alumni and their faculty and people who were on these grand tours. And so, like this collection that I was looking at, you know, these are things that um, you know an alumni from this university went through Peru and probably in the late 1800s, I would guess. And, you know, like literally like pick these things up as souvenirs off the ground surface yeah. and brought them back. And, you know, you don't know how they get to Harvard then, whether it was part of his estate or, mm-hmm. you know, what, but, um, you know, these things then move into these collections and sometimes nobody, sometimes nobody bothers to even open the boxes when they come in. You know, oh, this was given to us by Bob, and Bob gives us good stuff, so we put it on a shelf and we forget about it. Um, so yeah, that's you know that's a thing. Like a lot of dissertations are being written all around the world right now based on old collections that people haven't looked at closely or haven't looked at using the best technology that we have today. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, just think about. I mean, we're talking about using earlier lidar to find parts of the world that have never been seen, um, not since, or at least not by people who are looking for it for thousands of years. And now we're talking about the things that were found and then lost again and now are being rediscovered. I mean, it sounds like archaeology is is a really fascinating field at the moment. It is, man. Well, and you know, I mentioned earlier that uh, that 2,000-year-old cactus spine mm. tattoo tool that we found earlier, I guess we reported on earlier this year, found it a couple of years ago. That was actually excavated in the uh, maybe 30 years ago or so. and had been in a collection in a university and just no one had had the particular expertise or the technology to look at it and figure out what it was. 
um, you know, that's no knock on the people that, that had it. It's oh, yeah. just that, you know, Hey, we have, we have lasers, right? <laughs> exactly. Laser beams. Oh man. Yeah. Oh, that definitely gives you a lot to think about. Doesn't it? Hmm. It does. Hmm. And, uh, you know, and once I have my French nemesis in place and yes. my, uh, con- contract with the government to save the world on a yearly basis, I'll, uh, yeah. I want to come on one of the missions. I want to be one of the old right. friends. I want to be one of the, the sidekicks. I'll dig. Give me an okay. Give me a you're, you're gonna you're gonna have to fight the guy on the airfield though. <laughs> pretty sure uh, you prophesized that in college. I'm just saying. Um, you you had some pretty bold claims about my uh, what is it? My decorative plumage and ability to run <laughs> in the post-apocalypse. Right. That uh, yeah. Anyway. Uh, let's, let's, let's shuffle off of, uh, of, uh, past recollections though, and move on to, so clearly we have four Indiana Jones movies. Um, are you sure? Do we really? (laughs) Right. Uh, well, let's, let's talk about the, well, clearly your favorite must be the crystal skull. Um, what's your favorite? Um, I'm going to, while you think about that, I'm going to quickly knock through, I saw, as I said, I saw Raiders when I was six. It was right after I saw Star Wars and Empire. And so for me, it it was just the continuation of that golden age of like 80s cinema that was just fantastic and changed the way I looked at the world. And it's probably the way that I, is largely the reasons why I'm so crazy about the nostalgia that I am crazy about as far as toy soldiers and my hobby is now. Um, But then... Temple of Doom came along, I believe, 84, and I saw it. My uncle and dad took me to see it literally the night before we flew to Japan, um, the, before I moved to Japan the first time. And my God, was that a different movie. Um, yeah. Dark. Yeah, uh, and then I guess I was in high school when high school or um, middle school. I, somehow it might have been when I moved. Um, I think I missed uh, The Last Crusade in the cinema because of moving countries, because the U.S. was six months ahead movie-wise from Japan. So somehow in the mix, I, I didn't see The Last Crusade in the cinema, whereas I saw all the other ones in the cinema. And so whereas lots of people say that you know, Raiders is their favorite or Last Crusade, Last Crusade is their favorite, and then you know, Temple of Doom's the third... For me, it's always been Raiders, Doom, Crusade, and then a very distant after that, of course, is Crystal Skull. Um, but for me, that that's how it feels. Um, but, I mean, it's funny. I went into this movie, having seen this movie a ton or listened to it, expecting the truck scene to have a tank. Um, it's funny how, you know, the tank from... The Last Crusade. It's funny how these movies sort of blend together. Well, it's it's interesting you say that because when I was rewatching this one, um, that first sequence with the where he climbs on the plane, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this is where he has to jump out of the plane in the life raft. Mm-hmm. You know, like it just in my head that was the next thing that was coming, and yeah, I was like, yeah. oh no, shit, that's a different movie entirely, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, the gong scene where they're being chased by the gong, um, I, I had read that at one point that in in an early draft of this, um, that was storyboarded for Raiders. 
that scene where he gets and it isn't the jewel that at the beginning of Temple of Doom, it's mm-hmm. it's the the headpiece. And um, that whole scene was meant for Raiders and it was cut um, and they used it later in the next movie. But because I read that, I guess, years ago, I always expect it to be in Raiders, but it's not. I mean, clearly, because um, different heroine. But yeah, I, I always get confused by that. Anyway, yeah. So what is your order, sir? Uh, you know, I, honestly, I think it's a toss-up between Raiders and Last Crusade for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, Ra- Raiders is so, like, seminal and important important Mm -hmm. and you know just like the foundation the whole thing but then i don't know last crusade i really kind of enjoy you know like i kind of enjoy that it doesn't take itself too seriously and the sort of fleshing out of his backstory and Mm -hmm. um you know of course sean connery is great in that oh yeah um but uh but right up there too i would put the short-lived young indiana jones tv series i'm glad you brought that up because that was great right yeah, I mean, well, the thing is, I I haven't actually rewatched it as an adult, and I don't know Me if it neither. stands up, <laughs> right? Like, so we we went back, and uh, my wife grew up in Pacific Northwest, and so uh, um, Twin Peaks was really fundamental to her mm-hmm. her sort of youth. But we went back and tried to watch that thing, and oh my god, it was terrible. Like we could not make it through more than one episode. Yeah. and I don't know if Young Indy stands up to a rewatch or not. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny how some of the things that we loved as kids, you watch now and you go, ooh, ooh, yeah, no. Uh, I tried to rewatch a bunch of episodes of classic Miami Vice. Oh, God. Wow. <laughs> and there's, don't get me wrong, there's some, there is some great stuff in there. But my God, uh, yeah, not, ooh, ugly. Um, but yeah, okay, well, good. And it sounds like uh, Temple of Doom didn't, ring your bell as much it's good but it's a totally different movie i mean you know you think about the sequence of the thing right it is it is that kind of like um it's empire strikes back right it's it's the dark second Mm -hmm. movie in the series um and you know no it's not my favorite but it's it's pretty amazing in its own right it is um you know crystal skull is uh is uh it's like highlander 2 yes right like really we should just sort of like write it out of the canon collectively (laughs) agree to never talk about it again exactly um i i was listening to a podcast where they were reviewing the movie um and part of my research for this and what they were saying i thought was really fascinating um the guy who was um now I'm not sure of how the roles work. And I know Steven Spielberg is, you know, is touted as being super talented about how to set up a scene and how to shoot it and do, you know, as director. But it's the the person who's actually in charge of um, cinematography or photography um, who then actually sets the camera and does it. Um, The first three indie movies were shot by the same person. Mm. Um, And then... Um, he never, I think that was when he retired and then he was replaced, um, by a couple of people and then, uh, with other Steven Spielberg movies, but from Schindler's list on, um, Spielberg's always used the same guy and he's got a very different style. 
And so mm. even though the Spielberg said we're going back to the old school and they reshot when they shot Crystal Skull, they shot it using a lot of the old school tricks. They said specifically, we're going to use a lot of practical um, non-CGI for this. We're going to try and make it look like the Indiana Jones movies of old. Um, but the fact that they had a different person actually shooting, like taking the camera um, using it, I think is largely why, at least that's what this podcast that I was listening to. And it makes sense. If you look at it, they look different. Um, and I think it largely comes down to that. And I, yeah, it, it's funny how, what a difference the optics make, but given how that consistent the they the are. Sto- that, yeah. that and the fact that the story is trash, but you know, whatever, <laughs> that aside. And Shia LaBeouf. Anyway, moving aside. I, you know, I wasn't even going to call him out. I, you know, <sighs> Yeah, I got. I did I tell you I got invited? Did I tell you I got invited to go on Ancient Aliens? No. Oh, please don't. Yeah. Story time. Yeah. Yes. No. And? They. Uh, this was earlier this year. I got a. I got a call to uh, an invitation to fly out to L.A. and appear on an episode of Ancient Aliens, talking about ancient body modification. And. Oh. Uh, and yeah, you said gonna, no because. Uh, you wanted credibility you know, in your career? Come on. <laughs> right. Credibility, right? Um, well, you know, because a lot of things, right? Because, uh, you know, because they were going to pay for my plane flight and 125 bucks, I think, which would, you know, almost cover babysitting. Yes. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I just, that whole, that whole thing, the whole crystal skull alien thing, right? It's mm-hmm. just, it's just a microcosm of this bigger historical narrative in which we, you know, we say that quote unquote primitive cultures can't have done things on their own. Right. 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 It must've been done. You know, the Maya couldn't possibly have built up, built their pyramids. It must've mm-hmm. been done by the Chinese or the aliens or, or you know, someone else. Yeah. Right. It's, you know, it's n- no one ever says that the Greeks and Romans needed alien help to build their temples. Right. It's True. just it's just every other group around the world who couldn't possibly have stacked up stones like that. Yeah. And, you know, it's 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 part of this dark racist past of how we interpret non-Western culture. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I just I hate the fact that the movie foregrounded that, um, yes. you know, and made it part of the narrative because, you know, I mean, I, I'm willing to give them like ancient Jewish symbols and mystic stones and stuff. But, you know, do we have to do aliens? Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know. Anyway. Well, I'm, I'm uh, of course, picturing the meme of the guy with the messed up hair with the just yes. aliens yeah, underneath. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, 100%. Gotta love the History Channel, ladies and gentlemen. Um, or, as we said in the in in university, the Hitler Channel, because back then right. every single documentary was about World War II. Right. Yes. And aliens and usually Hitler and aliens. But yeah, something along those lines. But yeah. Well, all right. Man. Well, yeah, yeah I'm sorry. Go and, ahead. and just as another note, you know, that is actually kind of a thing, right? Like Hitler and aliens, not specifically, but, you know, that is something about Raiders of the Lost Ark is that this is grounded in historical fact is that the Nazis and particularly Adolf Hitler were fascinated by archaeology and ancient relics. Yeah. Um, particularly things that might you know, show the supremacy of the so-called Aryan race, Mm -hmm. right? But, you know, there were archaeologists employed by the Nazis, but there's also this whole other sequence where, you know, like 
Hitler believed the earth was hollow mm-hmm. and, you know, there's the search for the hollow earth and, it, you know, you get some really weird stuff happening in there too. Yeah. Yeah. And which is fascinating because Hitler didn't even really believe in Christianity. He, um, he just sort of put it on to uh, appeal to the local German population. Um, he believed in some weird pagan uh, Aryan thing that was going on at least you know, at least that's what the Hitler channel taught me in college. Um, but you know, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's weirdly problematic that they have, um, Oh, how do I say this? Um, you know, Hitler, well, I guess he's looking, he's looking to legitimize his claims, right. With um, searching up, you know, things that could show an Aryan past, um, but the fact and also, and, yeah, and yeah. also control Hellboy, you know, yeah, I mean, well, got yeah. yeah, of course. Um, well, that who doesn't want to control Hellboy or the um, Tesseract? I mean, the, whichever, <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Red Skull. Um, but I mean, in this movie, they have him searching down, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, which would prove the existence of, you know, if you think about it to the next logical step, the Jewish God, right? Hmm, yeah, whoops. Maybe I'm pushing the wrong agenda, kids. But I have the uh, I have the ark anyway. I don't know. Um, and you know what are they going to do? Drop the ark and open it up and kill everyone inside? I, I, okay. <sighs> you can go down this rabbit hole for days. Um, they but, hadn't thought it through. Yeah. Well. Yeah. It's look. It's a. I think where I'm going with this is Raiders of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones movies in particular are awesome fun um they really do take the serials of the 1930s 1940s 1950 no 40s 30s 20s 30s 40s whatever and take it to the extreme um and i'm glad this movie exists it is it is fantastic it is so much fun to watch i know that watching it with modern eyes is sometimes problematic but that that's true with a lot of the movies that we watch these days um going back to the quote-unquote classics especially if you go even further back um but man i have really enjoyed digging into this and uh more to the point Uh, i've enjoyed talking uh, shop thank you uh, look at you making puns about digging didn't even do that on purpose um but yeah man just uh getting in there and talking shop has been a crud load of fun uh Aaron, anything else that you wanted to bring up before we wrap this? We land this uh, arrow wing with the arc on it. No, man, that's this is awesome. It's uh, it's pushing midnight here in Tennessee, and um, yeah, you know, I uh, I'm really I'm really happy you had me on, man. It's fun chatting with you. Yeah, you too, brother. We uh, we might have to have you back on at some point to talk about something that isn't archaeology, um, <laughs> but uh, I'm sure we could find something. Uh, you know, that uh, appeals to all the tick boxes that we can find. Uh, yeah, something. I'm sure we can talk yeah. about something. Definitely. Well, uh, I think uh, I think on that note, we'll uh, we'll put the Ark back on the covenant and uh, we will say uh, <laughs> good night, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Aaron, again, thank you so much for making the time. And um, I know that uh, it is late where you are. Uh, but as I said, it has been an absolute pleasure. So thank you again. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, when you are playing the games that we know and love, in the immortal words of our good buddy Casey, I hope your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than anything else, when you're playing the games that we know and love, 
We at Cast Eyes hope you are having fun. Good night. I'm